0: Stop. Please, please stop. Please stop. Please stop. Oh, no. no. No, Mike, it's not the same log. It's not the same log, Mike. Same log. Look, it's not. It is open your eyes. It's not the oh. same log. Oh. <laughs> it's, not <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same log. <laughs> <That's so bad. laughs> The same the same you the same
1: hello everyone and welcome back to the pod and the pendulum podcast the horror movie podcast dedicated to covering every horror movie franchise and series one movie in one episode at a time i am your host mike snoonian joined once again with my fabulous co-host jerry smith jerry how are we doing (laughs) fabulous i'm doing great man i'm really excited about this very much this to me is like one of the, the scariest movie we've covered to date so far like this is to the recovery for folks that don't know, because you don't read the episode going into when you're downloading the show, which would be very strange. We are about to embark on our coverage of the Blair Witch Project, which remains the scariest movie I've ever seen in theaters
2: you know it's up there for me too uh you know i was saying uh, earlier you know off the air that i've only seen the blair witch project three times because it scares the living hell out of me i cannot watch it very mm-hmm. often it's it's terrifying i think
1: absolutely agreed i think there's like a realism to this it just kind of captured a moment at the time i remember the first time i watched this movie um walked back into my apartment at like two in the morning because i had gone to a midnight screening in boston when it premiered and mm-hmm. i walked in just as my roommate walked out of his bedroom and i jumped and screamed like <laughs> i was like a four-year-old that so that's the, what i'll always remember the most who do we
2: have with us this week jerry uh we have multimedia producer marcos Cotis, which i'm very excited to have on the show marcos how are you doing man
3: uh i couldn't be better uh, I as I always say, if I was any better, you would have to find me. Uh, I'm super <laughs> excited to to talk about my favorite movie of all time. Uh, this is a movie that really like inspired me to be a filmmaker, so I cannot wait to get into it. All
2: right, this is gonna be great. I have a feeling about it. Marcos, what is it about, we well, always like to ask our
1: guests what it is about the movie uh, that we're covering that made them want to jump on board as a guest this week. So tell me a little bit about what it is about the Blair Witch Project that made you want to come on board to talk about it.
3: Uh, well, to me, it's a mixture of two things. First, on a uh, filmmaking level, the immediacy there that, that exists between the audience and uh, what's going on on screen uh, as you watch the film that drew me in the first time I saw it and it continues to haunt me to this day and it's something that I wanna emulate every time I do a project. It's something that I'm looking for to have that, you know, the least resistance between the audience and whatever it is that you're doing. And on a personal level, uh, it means a lot to me because it was my older brother who recommended me, uh, you know, recommended that I go watch this film. And uh, I was on vacation with my family and took my dad to a dingy theater and he fell asleep and snored through the whole thing and I scared myself shitless. So <laughs> um, you know, on a personal level, it means a lot to me. And on a professional level, I think it really you know it's kind of blurred the boundaries between the audience and the piece and that really stuck with me
1: um how many horror movies did your older brother introduce you to like how often was he your gateway into like horror movies or just movies in general
3: it's funny because uh he wasn't prolific in his endeavors but whenever he said something uh let me give you a history of the stuff that he recommended to me um early mm-hmm. 90s uh, was Nirvana and Metallica. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, I was eight or nine when he was like, hey, you should listen to this. And he, you know, he gave me a Metallica CD because I didn't have a CD player. And he just, you know, told me to go into his room and listen to the, to the Black album. Um, And a couple years passed and then, you know, the the Blair Witch Project came along and uh, he was like, you know, you should really give this a shot. I think you're going to like it. And he didn't say anything else. Like, I didn't know. I was in Uruguay. Like, there was no internet, no no nothing. um, And I didn't know that this wasn't real, you know. And I went into a theater and and while my dad was snoring next to me, uh, these fucking kids were disappearing and shit. So... I don't know how, what, where we are language wise. I don't know if we can curse.
2: <laughs> oh, no, you're good. You can. Okay, oh, okay. no. We're completely
1: blue. Yeah.
3: Okay, okay. Well, um, it, he didn't do it often, but every time he did it, it would really make an impact on my life. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's really more about the quality rather than the quantity of of his recommendations.
2: Oh, no, definitely. Cool. I, I, I can see that. I mean, those are like such huge things to turn someone onto. I mean, nirvana metallica the blair witch project those are like three very important you know in bands or albums or films in their respective art
3: i completely agree and i think uh he he's very much not into like art as a a maker himself um he's actually a doctor so it's very odd uh, to have this image of him uh growing up where he was kind of my guide into the obscure Um, and now he's you know a very well-regarded medical professional it's very odd i to, it's very hard to reconcile the, the the two brothers that i that i have basically but it's very very cool he's a cool cat
1: yeah i didn't have like an older brother i just had like a group of friends that would every now or cousins would every now and then introduce me to some really cool stuff i remember being like five years old and my cousin giving me like a Beatles record and a Queen record. So that was always really neat. But I'd never had the older brother that uh, brought me to the video store or the movie theater and kind of introduced me to some really cool shit as we kind of got older,
2: unfortunately.
3: I think it See, was I, one of the highlights of... Uh, sorry, uh, sorry,
2: Mike. No, 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 go no. Ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Let's
3: go. I was just gonna say that it's one of the things that I look back uh, and and remember the the most fondly is uh, you know my my brother giving me this these tips because I always looked up to him. We were five years apart, and I was like the little runt. Uh, Uh But whenever he would give me these like Yoda like words of wisdom, they really stuck with me throughout my years
2: definitely i mean uh, for me i i never had that my older brother was always like more interested in like you know tagging up uh places of business and like breaking things <laughs> i i got i got into yeah. i got into like skateboarding and punk rock and hardcore music very early on myself just because i was looking for something to identify with and the only thing i ever had like my cousin got me into like like death row records and like that kind of like gangster rap stuff that i still have such a love for Mm -hmm. even though like i'm far from like the you know that's it's not something typically that would be associated with me but yeah that's cool that's cool
1: yeah i remember being like in elementary school and kids on the bus listening to like nwa and EZE. e And we were this, like, suburban cow town that had almost as many cows as people in it (laughs) growing up. And you would see, like, kids, like, these, like, little white kids in these big puffy Raider jackets listening to (laughs) ECE. And, yeah. So we were, like, that cliche little town. Um, Like, we were definitely that. Like, we were straight out of cliche city i mean because there is like zero badasses in our well, town
2: we did know have funny.
4: a giant uh-huh. hmm?
2: no 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 i was so just saying but what, what is kind of funny and really cool about what we're talking about is some people might think it's off the rails and have nothing to do with the blair witch project but it does because yet like you were saying it was part of that kind of like town with more cows and people kind of thing and the same with me you know, like looking for punk rock or hardcore, something to identify with because everything else, you know, you didn't identify with. The Blair Witch Project was that first film that was so outside the box and the norm that I feel like a lot of people like us, like just latched on to something so unique like that, you know?
3: I grew up in a small town as well. We we had like a population of 10,000 uh, and there really were uh, like these urban legends surrounding the, the place, you know, and uh, so so by the time I went to the theater to watch the Blair, the Blair Witch Project, I was like fully primed, because I, I was raised in this, you know, deeply Catholic, rural town in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I myself was a huge fan by then of horror films and metal music. And this basically like labeled you satanic. Uh, Where I came from, Um, so it was. I was. I was really like almost brought up to find the Blair Witch Project good, Um, and it really didn't disappoint.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I I grew up in a very religious. I grew up in a very religious family, and I always questioned those beliefs. Uh, You know, it was something that I didn't really identify with, but I still had that fear because, unfortunately. And, you know, I'm not trying to talk down to anyone that, that has faith because, you know, all respect to them. Uh, but just for me, my own personal experiences, I was scared to death of the idea of God and all this stuff because every youth group would tell me all about the satanic panic era. I mean, that's what I grew up in, you know, the satanic panic era where every single thing was satanic, you know, every album played backwards was going to kill you or something you know and if you don't pray at night you're going to burn in hell so when the blair witch the blair witch came out when i was 18 years old and it was such a really great time for me because i was in the middle of this crossroad of what i did and didn't believe finally coming to terms with you know maybe i don't believe the stuff that i was raised in you know but i'm still scared because i have all these fears and the whole idea of the film really played into that fear that i had my entire life and i think maybe that's a big reason why to this day i'm just terrified of the movie it hit me at a time where i was i was just such a crossroads of who i was and what i believed
1: yeah i also grew up in a super um catholic household like i was an altar boy for a number of years um i actually like quit being an altar boy when a new priest started like after like three weeks around him um I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. And lo and behold, he was one of the priests that had been removed for being like abusive towards young boys. So I kind of dodged a bullet there. Um, it yeah. was like, and it was just like this instinct kicked in. And in this little town I grew up in, like literally, my house was the end of, at at the end of a cul-de-sac. You would walk out of my house on this path and go into like these deep woods, like. We would spend hours growing up, you know, from the ages of like eight to like 15 years old. All you'd go into the woods, we would build tree forts, we'd build forts, we'd play war games. You'd like just wander on and off pathways. And it was pretty easy to get lost in them as well. And it could be really spooky out there. And there were like, tales of, like, witchcraft and ghosts and all this fun stuff growing up. So this movie brought back, like, a ton of memories to me. Um, And, you know, and Jerry, like you had mentioned, like, you know, questioning things and, you know, questioning what you believe in, for whatever reason, my town's library growing up Because I also grew up in the Satanic Panic Era. This little town in the kids' section of the library had an absolutely amazing occult section for kids where you could get, like, true vampire stories with these, like, really graphic woodcuts of Vlad the Impaler. (laughs) Um, True life – like, illustrated true life hauntings. Like, absolutely the most fucked up, like, werewolf and witchcraft books that
2: you could buy. Like, the history of witchcraft for children. That is so awesome. Did you ever come across? It's, did you ever come across uh, that that book like "Lambs to the Slaughter"? I have not come across. It that. was it was a book that was frequently recommended to parents in the Satanic Panic era, Christian parents, and it dissected mm-hmm. every popular art into being this evil thing. Like there, I think there was a whole chapter on how evil the Smurfs was. Like <laughs> <laughs> like this this book was like notorious for being like the biggest like satanic panic propaganda
3: stuff let's be clear though that the smurfs are quite odd
2: uh, they're odd yes <laughs> but i mean and what's funny is it was only after reading that book as an adult as a joke because so i was like god i have to read it now that i'm an adult that i went back mm-hmm. and like you know the smurfs opens up with like gargamel like bowing at a pentagram doing rituals <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> like as a kid and i just thought we're that was awesome to something there now <laughs> yeah, now that i'm saying that like shit that book was right no just kidding
1: yeah well i just think that it's like this you know the blair witch project allowed you know i think allowed certain people like if you were open to it to because it not only shows you can't see anything it doesn't not only show you anything there are things you just physically can't see and it makes your mind fill in all the blanks on it um that if you were of a certain age where you got to like really use your imagination to scare the bejesus out of yourself like it allowed that to come kind of rushing back in
2: well it succeeded at doing what i think the first jaws film did i think that's why jaws is so terrifying to me still Is because it doesn't Mm -hmm. show that much until like the last quarter of the film. You know, you watch Jaws the Mm -hmm. Revenge and you see like that awful looking shark the entire movie. And, you know, and I I don't think it's the fact that the shark roars at the end of Jaws the Revenge that ruins the movie. I think it's the fact that there's nothing left to the imagination. And films like Jaws or more specifically The Blair Witch Project, I'm glad that we don't see much because, man, it kept me up for weeks like paint, like you know, filling in the blanks in my head about what I think, you know, was there.
4: Right.
3: I completely agree, and I was, I, and that sense of wonder is something that I, I, I also kind of have kept in the back of my mind. And I, I was watching, uh, my wife and I were watching E.T. last night, and it was my first time watching the film. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Uh, no, well, that's great. I watch I watch a hell of a lot of storm, uh, Starship Troopers, so I didn't have time for AT All right <laughs> Oh, Uh But yeah, uh, I was watching it, and it was uh, it was a masterpiece of showing just enough. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, that's also sort of what and and when we start getting into the the inspiration behind the Blair Witch Project, a lot of what it inspired these guys to make the film was the fact that, you know, the unknown and what could be out there, but we don't know. um, I think that plays a lot into why this and other things are successful. And I really much prefer uh, watching something like this rather than something that, you know, uh, shows everything in a single go. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the conception of the movie. And I think it's impossible to talk about the Blair Witch Project and why it's so successful without delving pretty deep into the background of it overall. Oh, definitely. Um,
4: Definitely. Because
1: I think that the two things are so intrinsically tied together that you have to do that. So co-directors Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Myrick, along with their producer Greg Hale, kind of all meet up and become friends at the University of Central Florida. And part of what they bond over, Myrick and Sanchez in particular, is their love of like these shocky exploitation shows that you would have seen in the late 70s and early 80s, like Ripley's Believe It or Not, or In Search of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Um, These were shows that basically presented the paranormal as real, or at least said that there's a possibility that the paranormal is real. And they were cheesy, they were schlocky, but they were, you know, a bit subversive and transgressive as well for all the cheese that was there.
4: hmm
2: I, I, I'm a big fan of those shows. Like, and I, I think it's a funny touch to have, like, Leonard Nimoy host that. Or, like, uh, what's the one that Jonathan Frakes from, from uh, uh, Next Generation hosts? Do you know what I'm talking about? Hold on, I'm not like, sure. mm-hmm. Yeah, Jonathan Frakes uh, from... Uh, Star Trek. He hosts one within the last few years. What's basically kind of like this generation's take on those things. And yeah, and it's become are, a meme, hasn't it? Yeah, the, the,
3: the, yeah you're totally. right.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, but uh, yeah, it takes I think these it's kind beyond, of like, beyond belief. Yeah, ex- yeah beyond, beyond belief. Yes, yes. fiction. It's, it's hilarious because you watch him, and he's so committed to like the whole shtick of it that you know, even if it's even if it's false. It's so fun to watch that journey of each episode because like the way it's presented. And I think that that's that love of shows like that is very uh, prevalent in, I think, Blair Witch and what uh, Sanchez and, and Myrick put together.
3: Absolutely. And sure. you gotta remember that uh, the the whole thing about why In Search Of and, and shows like that work was because of the setup. Um, because of how they they built up the story around it, and that's why Leonard Nimoy, Nimoy was there. He was the, basically the the puppet the puppet master, uh, you know, behind the whole thing, you know, orchestrating the storytelling around it, so that you would be sucked into the story. And that's kind of what happens as well with, with the film. Uh, eventually, when it, when it gets done, is that the lore is so gripping. That by the time you're presented with the the stuff that's happening to the three guys out in the woods, uh, you are completely, completely convinced that something is actually happening.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and the lore is what really, I think, in a lot of ways is a jar of this movie. and. The, both uh, Sanchez, Myrick, and, and Hale, as well, they start before they you know have a script. They start basically coming up with the mythology of this movie. Um, you know, starting with Ellie, uh, Ellie Ketterd, um, the old woman who, during the, the 1700s, was banished from the township of Blair after kids report that she's a witch. Um, the town banishes her. They come up with the idea of her being banished from the town. I think she's like according to lore tied to a tree and then basically left for dead out in the middle of the woods. Mm
4: -hmm.
1: Everyone presumes she's dead. Only a year later, all the kids that accused her of being a witch had gone missing. And there's an obvious inspiration, um, coming from the Salem witch trials of 1692. Um, where you know, girls like Anne Putnam and her friends accused the uh, servant Tituba of being a witch and doing black magic and then accusing others of witchcraft, which led to the hanging deaths of, I think, 19 women and then uh, one male being pressed to death by a bunch of rocks because he didn't want to give up his land, basically, if he admitted he was a witch. Um so, there's obviously inspiration drawn from American history, but they build out from there. Aside from the initial Legend of the Witch, there's the girl that is pulled under the stream. They add the story of Coffin Rock, where one girl disappears. The search party that goes to look for her is um, found eviscerated on a rock with her guts. Kind of torn open and them tied into some weird symbol, and then obviously the story of Rustin Parr. Um, What do you guys think of like the Rustin Parr myth or backstory? Because that to me was like the creepiest bit, and probably the one that ties most
2: into what goes on in the movie. Well, it's scary as hell, man. I I I think that. Not only the Rustin Parr stuff, but basically all of that mythology adds to, I think, the uh, appeal and the effect of the film. You know, you have so many other series that started with one movie, and then after the fact, they act like it was a big plan. I mean, you Mm -hmm. know, Star Wars came out. It was a big hit. Then George Lucas says, oh, never mind. It's called A New Hope during the re-release, and it's a trilogy. You know, like – or, you know, like – Slasher movies today, one successful, and then suddenly, like, oh no, this was always going to be a series. Whereas Mm -hmm. Blair Witch, like you said, they built that mythology from the ground up and they made sure each of these stories, these backstories, this whole mythology was going to scare the hell out of their viewers before they even rolled the camera. And I think that that's a testament to how smart and savvy that both of those filmmakers were.
3: If I could just uh, interject for a little bit, uh, it's very w- when we're talking about the the backbone of the story uh, surrounding you know the lore of the Blair Witch project, it's very important to bring up uh, Ben Rock, who ended up being production designer on the film, uh, and he developed mm-hmm. a lot of the sort of the backstory mm-hmm. that ended up being used for what would become phase two of the of shooting and ended up being. Uh, mm-hmm. Curse of the Blair Witch and the Burkittsville Seven eventually, the, the story of Rustin Parr, and we'll talk about that in a bit, I'm sure. But uh, it, was, it mm-hmm. was really Ben Rock that was tasked with this, you know, mammoth endeavor of creating the, the mythology around uh, the, the backstory of the, of the Blair Witch. Um, Eduardo and Daniel were, were focusing on getting the film made with Greg, um, and eventually, you know, the 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 Haxan Five, as they would become mm-hmm. known, uh, would would get the logistics going. Uh, but it was Ben Rock who developed a lot of really
2: that fleshed story. it out and stuff. Yeah, wow.
3: yeah,
1: right. Well, Rock is going to eventually take a lot of the material that's left on the cutting room floor when they decide to reshape the movie, and that's where you're going to get The Curse of the Blair Witch. So you're right, he was instrumental in coming up with a lot of this backstory initially, and then he also is really the one responsible, I think, for driving a lot of the... I would say intrigue about the movie um, right before its initial release with the curse of the Blair witch. And we're definitely going to talk more about that uh, shortly here. And we're actually going to be speaking to Ben rock at some point next week um, to talk about the Burkittsville seven, as well as the curse of the Blair witch, because those two on their own are great. Yeah. And we have, that's why we had to, uh,
2: um, lined up. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. That's like, Two of the other guests that we're eventually going to have for our Blair series, like, we kind of had to
4: mm-hmm.
2: schedule a time to where they could have, like, entire episodes mm-hmm. on just them because it's going to be so extensive, I oh, think, yeah. those guys. This
1: is this is my I – mean, as far as I'm concerned, like, is I can take – you know, the other two movies I've got various feelings on, but I could do just, like, a podcast – as many episodes as we did on Friday the Thirteenth, I feel like I could do that just on, on this movie. Yeah, just oh. this one movie. Not even the
2: whole. Series. See, isn't that exciting? Um, though that's exciting because I, you know how how like just animated and excited I was for every Friday Thirteenth episode, and God mm-hmm. knows it's going to be Especially five times worse night. for Halloween. Of- yeah right <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh it's gonna be five um, times worse for halloween episodes but it's cool that we have the blair witch for you jerry i really like your point
1: about how they built this mythology from the ground up and i think that hits it on the head as opposed to going back and doing like retcons or making it sound like oh we had this all figured out from the get-go and i think that stands say in sharp contrast to the series that you could most directly compare this to, which is Paranormal Activity, which is another movie I absolutely love. Like, I think it's a phenomenal movie. Um, But I think that the other films suffer after the first movie because they were tied or tried to create a mythology whole cloth that wasn't necessarily there from the get-go.
2: They try to fit things in. Oh, no, totally. Uh, and briefly, just speaking on paranormal activity for a second, I feel like that series—the only entries in that series that really worked for me—the were the ones, the ones that kind of did their own thing. Like, I love the first one. I love the third one because out of nowhere, witches are involved. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think uh, the marked ones is is probably my favorite because it's such a such a variation mm-hmm. from what we've seen. You know, I I think yeah. that when it's not planned from the beginning it shows even when you try to you know try to bring them all together with this mythology whereas like like we're saying with with the blair witch project you know ben rock and you know uh sanchez Merrick, all them like they wanted to give their viewers an experience and like i think almost out of every film in the history of filmmaking blair witch is probably the first time you see it probably one of the 10 best experiences that you could have and it's because of that
3: mm-hmm. i completely Absolutely. agree and uh, let, let's not forget though that uh much like the paranormal activity series uh at least the first sequel to the first official sequel to the Blair witch project uh, c- kind of threw away all of the mythos created by by the guys and sort of went its own way In terms of like plot and and backstory and and shooting style, Uh, just because Lionsgate was really keen to um, to release a sequel very quickly, so uh, I think uh, you know if we're measuring with the same stick, I think we're we we kind of have to acknowledge that the sequel was a little bit you know on the on the rushed side and and didn't capitalize on the rich history that these guys built on.
2: Uh, I remember after the film came out the first Blair Witch Project film uh, there was an Entertainment Weekly issue that ran and it had an interview with Eduardo and Daniel and I think Ben Rock might have been involved I could be mm-hmm. wrong. But, and they talked about how they had this whole idea for a series and all these directions that they wanted to go so it, it feels like right from the beginning they knew what they wanted to do. It just mm-hmm. feels like Lionsgate had other plans for you know every yeah. other thing.
1: Yeah, they've talked openly because they wanted to. They've want, they've wanted to make more Blair Witch movies um, ever since the success of the first one. But either Lionsgate or Artisan at the time was going to rush them to make a sequel, which are like, nope, we can't just like rush one out. This takes time, or um, Lionsgate just. You know, what didn't want to go in the direction that um, Daniel and Eduardo wanted to go into. I'm hoping we get to talk about that more in depth with them in the future, but we'll
2: see what happens. You know, what's, and I'll, I'll only touch on this briefly because this is the episode on the first film. But what I have always found really interesting is you get a film like The Blair Witch Project, which is, you know, very cinema verite kind of documentary kind of style. And then you get one of the best documentarian filmmakers to direct a narrative for the second film, and it's a disaster. Like, to this day, I still don't know how that didn't work, because Berlinger's, like, so huge for me as far as documentaries.
1: He almost gets a pass just because the Paradise Lost documentaries
2: are so good and so impactful. Oh, even Whitey. I mean, God, man, Mm -hmm. that guy. That guy can make them. Yeah.
1: But I think we're going to end up talking about him a little bit at the end of the episode, and okay. his opinion of what the Blair Witch Project was. And I know we're going to get more in depth on it next week. Um, if you ever want to hear me rage, definitely <laughs> tune in when we cover the Book of Shadows, because like that is a Mandy level of epic fail in terms of like oh my God. like a, a movie for me. It's one of the only movies I've ever when i've left the theater i was like physically angry uh
2: at a movie and wanted to punch people for how well, bad big, it was a big reason i can understand that a big reason that is how well the first film works you know
1: and what's That's- interesting what's interesting is um oh god the piece that accompanies that that ben rock produced for Uh, Book of Shadows works so much better in terms of tone, uh, in terms of narrative, and in terms of um, being scary than what Book of Shadows becomes. Like, it's the third piece, and probably the one that's least known overall. I'm actually drawing a blank on the name of it right now because this always happens to me. Um, But it's so much better than Book of Shadows in, like, the 45 minutes that it actually runs. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: And I personally think that um, as far as, you know, the spirit of the first film is concerned, I think Burkittsville 7 and Curse of Blair Witch are much closer than Book of Shadows or 2016's uh, Blair Mm -hmm. Witch Ever Made It. Um, And I think the error actually is in trying to follow the original story so closely um, because of how well... It was made i don't think the sequels should have stayed that close to to the original source mm-hmm. material that's why uh i think burkittsville 7 is by far my favorite
1: Absolutely. yeah mm-hmm. Burkfield 7 of the, of is very sequels. interesting yeah burkville is very interesting in terms of what it does and i think we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit um so we talked a little bit about the concept of how they've come up with this mythology overall with it i find the rust and parr stuff extremely creepy especially as it's presented in um, the curse of the blair witch the old footage they show of him and just like the reporters kind of haranguing him and then him just kind of getting up with that creepy smile on his face like but the story behind that is like Rustin Pars is this old hermit out in the middle of nowhere in the woods luring and all these children start disappearing one at a time until he reemerges from the woods and says, it's finished. Uh, and no one knows what he's talking about. They go out to his old cabin, and lo and behold, the seven missing kids are there. All have been murdered by him. Uh, one kid managed to escape. Um, and he says, well, I did it because the the, old, the ghost of the witch told me to do it. How did you kill the children, Mr. Park, with
0: knives? Mr. Parr, were you alone in the killings? Yes. Mr. Parr, how did you get the children into the woods? Promised them things. What kind of thing, Mr. Parr? Candy. Did you kill other children that we don't know about, Mr. Parr? Over here, Mr. Parr. Mr. Parr, why those seven children? That's what the voices told me. Mr. Parr, the writing's on the wall in your house. What do they mean? What are the writings on the wall, Mr. Parr? Did you write those? Did you write on the walls? No. Mr. Parr, you've been sentenced to death. Do you build us a stair? Yes. Mr. Parr, do you think God has forgiven you? Yes. Have you asked a priest for absolution? Yes. Have members of your family been deceived? No. Indeed. Mr.
4: Parr, is it faith?
1: He's obviously convicted uh, and hung, um, and his story is kind of the last episode in the Burkittsville woods before the events of the Blair Witch Project. So before even like a reel of film is shot, you have this really rich, detailed backstory that's going to inform everything that goes on for the 85 minutes of the Blair Witch Project. And it's just incredibly detailed
4: Mm -hmm.
1: um, and so well laid out. And it's not just background for the sake of background, but it moves to kind of move the story forward as well.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. And let's remember that the actors were not given scripts per se but mm-hmm. rather clues during the shoot so th- all they had to work uh with was this lore that it was that they created and they had to mm-hmm. make you know their performances they had to base them on both the clues that they were given on each day and mm-hmm. and the lore uh, Absolutely. so i i think it, it was a brilliant decision to to do the filmmaking that way and i think it's one yeah. of the reasons why i stands so so you know right. uh, between the other what it is
2: what it is is the perfect juxtaposition of great acting and great reacting you know like some of it is they're so in character you know the main three they're so in character that it's convincing but at the same time they really didn't know what was going on Mm -hmm. so it's it's both great acting and just being observant to your surroundings and reacting to them the way that they really would
3: yeah and they were very uncomfortable like they they were they were put through some stuff those three so um, i think a lot of it was just real frustration at the at the environment and the situation
1: yes yeah yep so before we get into that because i think i want to dive much deeper into that and uh marcos you're spot on in terms of like just how little i mean the blair witch script is 35 pages long yeah that's it it's like what you would find in like a long, short movie, basically. And it sets up all of the scenes, but uh, Myrick and Sanchez are going to put enormous amounts of trust in their crew, their actors, in terms of carrying out their vision. Um, And I don't think that can be stated enough. Like, they had to have a lot of faith in not only their editing abilities to actually put together a movie with what they got, but that they hired the right crew of people to carry out their vision um and to interpret that vision because so much is left in the hands of the actors Mm -hmm. okay so here's my question have either of you seen like kind of the eight to ten minute short film um that played on split screen that i haven't Okay, Marcos, have I, you seen
3: I, this? I have not, but I have seen something else that other people may not have seen that mm-hmm. is uh, uh, quite interesting. I've seen... I don't know if I can talk about it much, but I've, I've seen a documentary that was being made on the making of the Blur Witch Project mm-hmm. uh, that contained some very cool information. Um, but, you know, I- I'll talk about it as, as we go along. But okay. um, uh, this... this uh, a like this short film that you're mentioning it, uh, that was eventually used to, to shop around for, mm-hmm. for funding and stuff. Uh, it is mentioned and there was some cool backstory there. Uh, I just think I, I kind of dug myself into a legal hole, but, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the, the thing is though I have not seen the film but I have seen the, the, what happened before and how that film influenced production mm-hmm. um, and it really is such a clever way of pitching a different idea mm-hmm. um, and it's just it just goes to show that they really sort of had to try a different way of filmmaking even during pre-production just to get this thing done
1: right so this – and we'll put a link to the – because up on YouTube, the episode uh, – it's shown on a, a television show that ran on the uh, independent film channel um, back in the mid to late 90s called Split Screen, hosted by John Pearson, kind of a wealthy entrepreneur that had a real passion for the arts that you know would you know kick funds in and produce a lot of um, – Independent films, and he hosted the show on IFC as a way to kind of like kickstart and show off a number of like independent film projects and drum up interest in them. So Sanchez and Myrick. Make about a 10 minute what I would call like a pitch reel basically, and it lays out all of the backstory to the Blair Witch. It lays out Rustin Parr, it lays out uh, Eddie, uh, Ellie Kedward. Um, it lays out everything about the girl that disappeared. Uh, it, it lays out the fact that three students filmed a documentary, were out to film a documentary, and that they disappeared. Um, and a year later, their footage was found overall. And it runs about ten minutes long, and it's meant to act as like a pitch reel. Um, message boards, like it's not presented as fiction. Like when they show this, they don't say like, "Here's this new independent horror movie coming out that's presented as truth, but is actually like a fictional movie." They just l- put the information out there and let the audience decide what's going on with it. So. Oh, yeah. Message boards as they were, because this is like the early days of the internet, they begin to light up and all these people are trying to quote-unquote solve the mystery of what they saw on this. Um, One quick note about John Pearson, at the time he was on the programming board of Sundance, he saw this um short obviously hosted it was really intrigued by it he kicks in 10 grand of his own funds in order to help this movie get made um there's kind of like the rumor or assumption that like when the last broadcast was submitted to sundance in 98 he was like "Nah, we're not going to show this one doesn't quite make the cut knowing that blair witch project would be ready to go a year later um so he had maybe a reason to kind of keep that movie out um But people are like, when, when Pearson interviews, uh, you know, or he kind of questions Myrick and um, Sanchez about the movie, like, you know, what happened to these people? What do you know? Where are they? They're like, dude, you know, this is fictional, right? Like none of this happened. Like he was completely taken in and he's like, here is a check. You guys need to make this
2: feature movie. You know, what's great about John Pearson is that guy had a hand in so many up and coming filmmakers and mm-hmm. believed in them. I mean, Spike Lee, uh, you know Kevin Smith. Clerks would not have been what it was without John Pearson. That guy, he he had such a passion for independent cinema, and I, I don't think he gets enough credit. I had no idea that he had anything to do with Blair Witch prior to this. That is so awesome.
3: And uh, just on the subject of the last the last broadcast, uh, it was it was such a kerfuffle uh um, particularly just as the Blair Witch project started to take off that you know they were uh sort of ripping each other off <laughs> um but it, as you mentioned and i'm looking over your notes uh the reality is that Blair Witch was like you know it was created before uh, Uh, The last broadcast was even a thing, like, finished thing, at least. Um, They were sort of simultaneously developed independently of each other. And uh, I think that that rumor has... It's funny, because whenever I think that rumor has been well and truly dead for, like, two decades... Somebody mm-hmm. pops up on a YouTube comment and is like, oh, but, you know, there's this movie in the 1998 they're called The lot Broadcast. Yeah, And, you know, as if you can make The Blur Witch in, in a year as a response to the last mm-hmm. broadcast, you know. Um, and it's just funny to me that the, the rumor has never died, even though it's been 20 years since it's been debunked.
1: So let's well, I, do this now. Let's Yeah, let's talk about the last broadcast comparisons now, because I had this for, like, at the end of my notes here, but now's a good time to do it, I think.
3: Yeah, let's go so. into it.
2: Well, I think that, I mean, see, that's how I came across the last broadcast, uh, is because even the video stores that I was at was kind of comparing them hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, a- any time that you would go for the Blair Witch, if it wasn't there, someone would say, whoa, you should check out the last broadcast." You know, like, I think it's, I think that the films, even if they were independent of each other, I think they're always going to be held side by side, just mm-hmm. kind of like the way that Friday the 13th and Halloween was, Right. you know? And the thing about the last broadcast, you know, to be honest, it's it's a pretty effective movie until the last reveal, which yes. kills the entire film. And I, I think that... I think the last broadcast will always be held up to Blair Witch, but in in complete honesty, I just think one of them is light years better and and maybe shouldn't be held up to each other, you know?
1: If the Blair Witch didn't hit like a meteor uh, that really took everybody, audiences, critics, like everyone by surprise, I don't think anybody would ever talk about the last broadcast. And I don't mean that as... A criticism of the movie although I guess it is but I just think it's like not a kind of movie that would be that memorable otherwise
3: I have so th- to agree mm-hmm. I have to agree and uh, let's not forget that the Blair Witch Project was not just a film it was a fantastic marketing effort mm-hmm. um, and you know the, the whole the, yeah exactly and I know we're gonna talk about that a little more in a bit but uh, it when comparing, uh, inevitably, when comparing the two films, uh, you see, I think, a difference both in quality of the final product and a difference in the, the way the films are presented
4: mm-hmm. uh,
3: and the, the way the films are shot um, and the way the films feel in terms of how immediate they are mm-hmm. uh, to the action of what's happening. And I think for me, that's the biggest difference between the two of them is that uh, the, the last broadcast feels like it was made to look like it was real while, mm-hmm. while the, the Blair Witch Project feels real.
1: Right, the the fascinating thing about the the last broadcast is, and I think the intent of the two movies are different. The Blair oh, play, Witch wait, project, yes. it's it, the Blair Witch project, just wants to scare the hell out of you. That that's at the core of it, like it just wants you to walk out of the theater feeling scared. The Last Broadcast isn't really a horror movie per se, although it no. deals with horrific things. Last broadcast's intent feels like it is. Looking at truth in media and whether you can trust with your own eyes and your own ears what you're being presented, it's pretty fascinating. And I think it's something especially now. It's a message that very much resonates when we talk about deep fakes and fake news and doctored video and you know these bot accounts that – Um, spring up especially around political arguments like well what can you really trust like it's based around what seems to be a very cut and dry case where um, the antagonist of the movie Jim Seward um, goes crazy and murders the host of this like down and out little, you know, kind of like we talked about, you know, cable access paranormal TV show. Um, he goes, a uh, factor fiction. He goes out and kills those guys in cold blood. Um, and it looks very much like he would be the guilty party of it. And midway through the film, it suggests, well, maybe that's not actually what happened. Maybe we can't really believe What we've been presented with is fact overall, and it calls that into question. Unfortunately, it completely falls apart in the last reel when it goes from being a documentary style piece to kind of like your third, you know, regular old
2: Um, dramatic film at that point for the last five minutes what it's always felt like to me and i don't mean to diss april april's april fool's day because i love that original film Mm -hmm. it it feels kind of like the ending of that movie where you think it's one thing and at the end it's basically all just a big joke you know like i don't want to be invested in a film like last broadcast Mm -hmm. and be so interested in it and then what happens at the end happens and you're Mm -hmm. like what? I feel robbed of this whole experience right. that I just went through. Whereas Blair Witch, you know, Blair Witch, like, I walked out of that theater changed. And that sounds dramatic, but like I said, I've only seen it three times in my life mm-hmm. because it still has that effect on me. Right. You know what I mean? And and I think if we really think about it, you know, yeah, Pearson was on the Sundance, you know, committee and stuff, and it, that could be the case. But what I really think it is, the reason last broadcast was probably passed up is because it's really not that good of a movie. Agree. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I feel I, I feel like kind of like what Marcos was saying. You know that rumor it is it is always brought up, but at the same time, I mean, like I said, I just I just think last broadcast isn't that good.
1: You know what I mean? I would say the one thing, the one thought or idea that's come out. and I think in no way has a Blair Witch ever ripped off the last broadcast. I know that it came out, like, September of 98. What it does hold the distinction of is being the first movie ever beamed digitally into cinemas through satellites, which I don't think is a very common thing even now, to be quite fair. Um, And Myrick and Sanchez see it. They've already filmed the Blair Witch. They're editing at this point. And they see this movie, they're like oh shit, Like people are going to accuse us of ripping it off, or also they kind of see like the way that movie is structured, similar to The Blair Witch at that point, where it was more of a documentary at that point. You were seeing the things in The Curse of the Blair Witch was added into the actual movie, and then the last third or half hour of the movie was going to be Heather, Mike, and Josh Lost in the Woods. Mm-hmm. When they come out of the last broadcast, they're like, "This doesn't really work. What really works is the documentary parts of it. Maybe we should resculpt or restructure our movie." That's been the one suggestion to me that maybe holds any water, um, but to me, that's just to me, it's not a big deal. Like it's just like you just you're editing the movie anyway. You're going to go for what works. You already have all your footage. Yeah. I
3: cannot wait until you ask that question uh, of Eduardo. I, okay. I, I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing that because uh, as you mentioned during the, the the filming process, a lot of stuff that they filmed for Phase Two, what they mm-hmm. call Phase Two of the film, didn't make it into the main film. Mm-hmm. And I'm really now curious, and I was I was curious ever since I read your notes about this this idea that uh, the the last broadcast played a role in in them dumping mm-hmm. the the Phase Two stuff out of the film. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that.
1: And again, I don't even think it's from a point of view as, like, we're going to look too much like this movie. I think it was more of the point of, like, oh...
4: This didn't work in that.
1: It doesn't really work, but the things that do work are the actual parts where these guys are in the woods like a bunch of schlubs um, in over their heads. Like, those are the fascinating bits. Everything with the... um, Everything that was, like, the interview and the narration, like, that stuff is, like... It's, I, I watched it again recently over a uh, holiday when I was taking my notes for this. I'm like, just like just sort of really see how much these two stack up. And I'm like, this is a, this is a chore to get through at this point. Mm-hmm.
3: So, I think it works on its own. I think it definitely mm-hmm. would have brought the film down, particularly in terms of pace. Uh, but I think from a narrative standpoint, I think uh, what ended up, on the curse of the player which i think it really stands up on its own uh as an add-on kind of a dlc type thing to the main film um i personally find it enjoyable but then again i'm the guy who you know reads the the message boards from like 20 years ago so maybe i'm I'm not like general audience material Mm -hmm. but I, i i found it to be enjoyable even to this day
1: okay Yeah, I mean, there are bits I really like. I think knowing that that end is coming up at this point is what really kind of colors it for a little bit. So, Uh, because that, and for folks that haven't seen it, um, the person who had, and like, please don't get mad that I'm spoiling like a 20 something year old movie at this point. Um, The person who is narrating this whole documentary is revealed to be the killer. And it's a reveal that is done in the most incredibly awkward way. And the last five minutes of that movie are like near unwatchable to me.
2: And that's, that's the last broadcast?
1: That's the last broadcast.
2: Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I thought, I, for a second, I thought you were talking about some of the Blair Witch stuff. No, no I, I, oh, I
3: was talking about the, the curse of the Blair Witch, just to be Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I think that's where we got, like, mixed up right now. Oh, no, no, Mike, yeah, Mike was talking about the last broadcast becoming a chore. Uh, oh, not the
3: oh yeah, the Witch. Oh yes, yes, I'm sorry, yeah. I apologize, I, I no, no, misunderstood, no. yeah, no, no. I, I agree that the last broadcast, I found it hard to go back to as well, hmm. I watched it last year, and I did find it, like, well, uh, what's, like, what's going on, guys, let's move this thing along, it's a, a little bit of a slog, Um, and yeah, the ending, and, and the funny thing about the ending is that, when when Artisan and Lionsgate were doing their thing, uh, looking to distribute the Blair Witch mm-hmm. Project, they they had the guys film different endings because they weren't satisfied with the one that they had, mm-hmm. and they ended up using the original ending anyway. Uh, so, you know, endings uh, in general for films are a little bit of a important subject, I would say. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so can we put the last broadcast to bed? yes the last okay excellent (laughs) excellent that we never we'll never speak of that movie again um so let's dive in marcos you had touched on this a little bit with the discomfort um of the actors and the performers so um they go out they hire three actors with a decent amount of improv experience overall heather donahue michael williams and joshua leonard um hand them like this bare bones 35 page script and they tell them look your safety is very important to us but your comfort is not um what marcos you seem to know this pretty well why don't you talk a little bit about the discomfort that these guys were put through when filming this movie
3: absolutely Uh, i think we gotta start uh, at the beginning and i would say that the beginning for these three is josh's Uh, audition tape Mm
5: because he didn't
3: make it into the original audition sessions in New York and he taped in his his audition Um, and they were so taken by by his performance that they hired him basically on the spot and it was Mm -hmm. him that brought Heather on board um, for the film so uh, they were already pretty close and very trusty of of the performance capabilities of Josh and Heather in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike uh, was the last one to come on board. And uh, they sort of devised this guerrilla filmmaking scenario where they would uh, leave the the guys in the woods and they would leave uh, packages, basically some notes as to what their characters were gonna do Mm -hmm. that day. And GPS coordinates, and they left everything else up to the up to the three performers. And there was, this was because Greg Hale, and he was the one who came up with the idea of, of using you know this emerging technology as it was back then GPS, you know, to um, due to his army training uh, to mm-hmm. to guide the guys around and not interfere with them directly, like not interact with them directly. Um, and they were like they were in true discomfort. They didn't have access to like bathrooms. They didn't have like trailers that they could back to after a shoot. They were out in the woods for real. And some of the nights were like really, really scary and really fucked up. You could see uh, in in some of the behind the scenes shots when when the guys get back that they were not in good shape. Like they lost weight. They were like they hadn't been sleeping um it was like it was real uh, as you said their their safety was very important to the production team they were always like i think it was like two or three hundred feet uh a perimeter that they had around the performers
4: mm-hmm. and they
3: they had like camouflage gear on and they were using scopes to to make sure that they were okay and they had a safe <laughs> word uh but aside Which i from believe that, it's
1: these, taco was the safe word yes
3: yes yes and uh, taco
1: is my safe word Mine is Fozzie uh, Bear.
3: I do not have a safe word. I think I should I should come up with one. particularly you should. Since, I, since I'm yes. married now, yes. uh, I think... <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm just very boring, and I just think I would go with help. But... <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's great so you had mentioned greg hale's um army training greg hale was uh had had training in something called uh sir or survival evasion resistance and escape which basically think of the movie first blood and you have a pretty good idea of what this training is um Jesus. you have one person in in the army who was given a little bit of a head start, and then he was hunted by his platoon mates. And his idea, his goal was to survive and evade capture for as long as possible. And the idea is, even though you know that it's training and that you're, if you get captured, you're not going to become a prisoner of war or killed in battle, your mind still goes into that fight, flight, or freeze mode, um, and it treats it like reality. So Greg Hale took this army training, uh, and basically said, we are going to use this on three, um, untrained civilians as they go camping in the woods for eight days while we film this horror movie. Um, and I think that's why to your point, Marcos, so much of what you see in this movie feels real because it was real to them because they were tired, they were scared, they were hungry, um, Not only did they get those notes every day with bare bones instruction, this is what you're going to do, and coordinates, and all of them were given different notes, they were given less food every day to the point where by day eight, they were down to like a power bar and a banana to get through that day.
3: Yeah. And I don't know if you guys know, but I was actually in the army as well, though, obviously not in the U.S., but I was in the in the Paraguayan army. And by the end of our first year, we had to do survival training. And uh, like, it's real, like your body does not know the difference between, okay, this is just a simulation. Like your body goes into, okay, let's we got to get out of this shit because it's about to fucking break. You know, and, mm-hmm. you know, after the, the first couple of nights when you're with very little sleep under this amount of tension um, and, you know, no food, barely other than what you're able to catch yourself or whatever is given to you as a pittance, almost like your body is ready to like, OK, let's go. It's incredible how how real that situation becomes to your body and to your senses and to your psyche uh, once you start getting into the psychological games of sleep deprivation and like food deprivation it's it's very uncomfortable and we were ready like we have been going through very hardcore training for a year before we were put into this and this was just three actors that were just thrown into the deep end for eight days So as you mentioned, a lot of what you see is real discomfort, and I think that plays very well into the hands of the directors.
1: So, how long did it take for that to feel real? First, how long were you part? How long did that training last for you?
3: It was three days for us, and Mm -hmm. by the morning of the second day, it was like it was full on because one of my platoon mates lost his rifle. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you're in the army, like your platoon is your family. So because he loves his rifle, all of us had to like pay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it was very uncomfortable and we were basically the, the most junior, uh, unit out there. And by the, by the time we ended the, the training, we came back into the, into the base feeling like we could take down the the commander you know because you feel like so extremely pumped and it you know it's a very difficult feeling to describe uh the the stuff that you go through when you're doing that kind of stuff
1: when your platoon mate lost his rifle how did you and the others in the platoon? look at him or begin to feel about him when he lost his rifle and you knew that you were going to all suffer consequences for that?
3: Well, I think now that you mention it, I never drew the, the parallel and this is your interviewing skills at work. Mm-hmm. And you're asking this because of the map. Um, and I think it was a very similar reaction that was like, oh, fuck, it's him again. And it was just, it was him again. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. was, It was the guy that always fucked up and you know he lost how can you lose a rifle like it's not you know your car keys you know it's a big thing and he he woke up and the rifle wasn't there i don't know if someone was fucking them but to this Mm -hmm. day i don't know what the fuck happened to that rifle i i just Mm -hmm. know that it showed up later that day but we wanted to kill that guy because okay. we knew that we had gone through some extreme hardship and even more was coming our way just because that that crazy guy couldn't mm-hmm. keep his hands on his rifle for the night.
2: Just and, like the film and the
3: map. You're right. Yeah. And exactly. Once you-
1: Once you guys get back, you mentioned like you felt really powerful. You felt like you could take down the commander at that point, even though you mentioned you were the junior um, squad at that point. How long does it take, like, your body and your mind to return to what would be like a resting state from that feeling of like being really elevated?
3: For me, the, the thing that you got to remember is that we we went back into regular training. So I didn't mm-hmm. really come back all the way down into sort of civilian mode.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I was I was still at the base doing training. So, uh, But even still, it took me a couple of days of getting knocked around by the senior guys to realize mm-hmm. my place again. You know, because okay. they were not happy. When we came back, they were like, why are these bunch of weeps being all insubordinate all of a sudden? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, it took us a couple, a good couple of days to get back into the rhythm of things. And when I left the army after that year, because it's mandatory here, Mm -hmm. um, you have a couple of different ways of doing it. And I went for uh, reserve officer training, which Mm -hmm. is kind of like the the hardest you could possibly do while still remaining Mm -hmm. a civilian afterwards. Mm -hmm. And like it took me a good couple of months to not twitch when people talk to me. And, you know, I still get nightmares from time to time. So it was like, it was no joke. So I cannot imagine what, what you know, these three guys, I, I do wonder if they still have nightmares about mm-hmm. what happened because I, I sure do. And, you know, I don't know. It's very interesting. Well, and
2: it, it's, it's filmmaking that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, and it's interesting that a film as small at the time as the Blair Witch Project utilized such heavy and intense and outside the box you know, ways to, to approach it. Like, I, I have so much respect for them for doing that. It's so interesting to me.
3: I don't think it could be allowed, uh, to be yeah. honest. Uh, like, I don't think it would be allowed now. And when I was doing my own film, I was looking into making it look as if it was real. And I realized that Paraguayan law forbids you from faking a crime. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of a lot of laws have moved on.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
3: So, I don't think it could be made now.
1: It I think that it couldn't be made as it is you definitely couldn't make it with like a union crew. Um there'd be so many rules against that. There'd be just zero chance of that ever being done. Um it certainly couldn't be marketed as it is right now because it no. exists in this perfect time. Where the internet is just prevalent prevalent enough where almost everybody has access to it in some way, shape, or form and knows how to use it. But there's well, that- not things like Google and social media where things can be proven or disproven or argued in about 10 seconds.
2: Well, that ends, I mean, it seems like every film these days has this interesting viral marketing. You know, the Blair mm-hmm. Witch. Blair Witch kind of created that in a lot of yes. ways. Now, if you go on Twitter and you like a tweet about a Blumhouse movie, the characters tweet back. You know what I mean? Like, right. every film does this stuff. Right. Like, you know, I was getting weird out, weirded out because the, the lead character of Ma was tweeting me because I liked a post. You yep. know what I mean? Like, every single movie does oh. that. Whereas, like, the Blair Witch Project, it was unheard of at that point. And right. I think that that's maybe see, the more I'm talking about it, the more it makes sense why it scared the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. I had never experienced something like that. And to this day, I don't think I've ever experienced something like that again. Like just the wonder, the excitement, Mm -hmm. the the scares, being terrified but not knowing where the fine line between reality and fiction was. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. And... I just lost track of thought because you were so on point right there. So I think that pretty much nails it. Um, (laughs) It's it's to me in 1999 when this came out was probably the height of my pro wrestling fandom as well. And it was the height of like, say, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was the biggest star in the world at that point for pro wrestling. And as I'm watching it, I'm like, I know wrestling is fake. I know that it's all scripted, but man, when this guy comes out, I really want to believe it's real. And Blair, Witch did that for me, like I'm sitting in the theater. Like, I know this is a movie. I know that it's fiction, but it's presented in just enough with enough reality to it that I really want to buy in to what I'm seeing is real. And that doesn't exist anymore.
2: What's interesting is I, uh, a friend of mine through this kind of like very, small little film festival at his house recently uh he he directed the film starfish and he invited just a few people over to his house to have this kind of like weekend long film festival and we were talking about blair witch because his podcast we are geeks is also doing the blair witch series Mm -hmm. kind of now and it's been great listening to it but we were talking about blair Witch, and he said that he saw it opening night in new york and they had all three of the the leads their outfits on display yeah. and they were still mar- they were still marketing it as something very real yeah and man that experience like it will never be recaptured by i think any film
1: no there's there'll be nothing like that again um I know he, I would strongly recommend for anyone to go and listen to the We the Geeks podcast because, A, you get to hear everything we're saying, but with a sexy British accent, um, <laughs> as opposed to my Boston accent. Um, so, I'm, I'm, I'm from the Central Valley
2: in California. Like, I, I, just, I just say rad too much. You're just a,
1: a valley girl at heart, Jerry. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um, so, we were talking about how not only would the actors get these little notes and milk bottles and all of them they would not be given the same information so for example michael was told you're going to lose the map joshua and heather were not given the note michael is going to lose the map they were just going to react uh, when that is you know you're going to be given a piece of information today that's crucial react to it the other thing that happened there was a mix of professional actors and townspeople that Michael, Heather, and Joshua would go interview, and they didn't know who was who. And, Marcos, you made the point like they were revealed these bits of information little at a time, and then they would have to go. Like, they had no idea who Mary Brown was until they interviewed that man outside the grocery store who said, oh, yeah, you should really talk to Mary Brown. And then they would have to go find her. So it was kind of like, kind of like filmmaking by way of scavenger hunt.
3: Yeah, and uh, to me, Mary Brown is a turning point uh, in the film, Mm -hmm. because she is the first actor outside of the three that to me feels like she is kind of the perfect embodiment of what the Blurb Witch Project is, Mm -hmm. because she is one weird lady. And the thing is that even the filmmakers were weirded out, like in real life, by by her, by the actress that plays Mary Brown. So uh, I think she is the turning point, and looking back, now knowing that the film, uh, you know, it's a film, right? It's not mm-hmm. real life. And I think I'm the only one of the three that, that thought the film was real going into the film, right?
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: so looking back now, uh, I think that's the point where you can say, okay, this performance is so good that even knowing that the film is just a film and it's not real life, it still holds this suspension of this belief yes. so strongly well, that, you know, and it rests on these performances so much that this is going to work. And for me yeah. that, that point is Mary Brown.
2: I, I watched the film uh, this last week. Uh, my kids were over and i thought we'd have like a movie night and mm-hmm. you know i i needed to revisit it to pre- prepare for this episode so i watched it and i was like hey, i'm gonna scare the shit out of my kids and we watched it and my kids were asleep by the time the mary brown character shows mm-hmm. up so they were just like whatever this is boring but even knowing a hundred percent it's fiction you know it's 2019 we we already know by now that blair witch is not real but even still that character scared the shit out of me. She's so unnerving. She's I cannot her- I cannot make it through this movie even today without just being on the edge of my
1: seat. Oh it's her voice, it's the way she moves and she looks like someone who's been touched by horrific evil and never recovered from it.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah she looks like she was like her soul was sucked out of her mouth like 150 Mm. years ago and she just Mm -hmm. never died yeah Uh, she she looks like properly weird and it Mm -hmm. was perfect casting and to me that's the even to this day that's the turning point of okay this film is gonna work based on the performances Mm -hmm. alone
0: because something interesting
5: happened to you actually at one point in your life you had an encounter with the blair witch um yes that is um a really kind of scary story um, to kind of make ends meet, my dad and I would go fishing down by Taffy's Creek. Right. And, you know, it's, um, in Burkittsville. I was laying down on the leaves, a pile of leaves, kind of watching my pole and looking up at the sky. Sure. And, uh, all of a sudden I felt like something was near me. Right. You know, kind of a eerie feeling. It, it was like a woman. only on her arms and on her hands and everything it was like hair, like a real dark almost black hair uh-huh. like like a horse. like fur yeah like a fur like horse fur then her arms she had like a shawl right wool shawl over her and she scared you she threatened and, you um she didn't say anything but she just kept staring and then right. she opened up her shawl and what was under there and under it, there was hair on the body, like all. So she horse. was hairy from head to toe. Yeah, it's... and her, her legs, and her, you could see her right. face. How about was her was just kind of like strange looking. Mm-hmm. Here's
1: another thing I love about the, the decisions that uh, Myrick and Sanchez made with the movie. Not only do they give these different townspeople and actors pieces of information about the mythology of the blair witch they also give them contradictory bits of information information that is just a little bit off from one another which to me if you were if you were to go to a town that had a lot of folklore and a lot of history to it and a lot of oral tradition if you were to ask 10 different people about that history all ten of them are going to have slight variations of how they know the story, and that adds to that reality and that suspension of disbelief because there's just enough truth in what they're saying to okay, they know what they're talking about, but they're also contradicting contradicting one another a little bit.
2: Hmm. Good. It's it, it just it's a testament to acting too. Mm-hmm. You know, At, or like I said, reacting earlier. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Heather and Josh, not knowing that, you know, the other guy was going to lose the map, like mm-hmm. you can tell there's actual venom being spewed, you yes. know, they're, they're pissed off. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the conditions that they were put through. It's not knowing where they're going as an actor or just as a person in general. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's the perfect just pot full of ingredients
1: exactly and you get moments like the mother who is like recounting the story um and her little she's holding her little boy and she wasn't an actress she was like a townsperson in burkittsville and he starts to freak out and starts screaming no and is trying to cover her mouth uh and it's just like a perfect little moment like it's just one of those things that if you were to script that moment i don't think it would come off nearly as well it would look fake this doesn't look fake
3: can, I, I, can I, I jump in no, just a second? Yeah, Because it. it. yep. uh, it's funny, because I know we're going to touch on the legacy uh, towards the end of the episode, mm-hmm. but it, it was actually a little girl, and her, her oh, okay. mom and, and the girl are sort of, uh, very involved in, in the in the tour that goes on every October, mm-hmm. the, the Blair Witch experience. Oh, wow. And they're like really friends with with the crew that organizes the tour and they talk to the people that go on the tour and talk mm-hmm. about their experience and, and you know they recreate the scene and uh, obviously the girl is now in like her 20s. So uh, she, Does she's the mom still, still pick her up and hold her like that? or They, they put her, like, usually there's, like, a, a, a little bit of a wall, and mm-hmm. she sits on the wall so that she's still higher than her mom. <laughs> and they play with the, with the thing. Like, it's fantastic. Like, you, oh my you guys, God. yes, it's, it's absolutely great. And the townspeople are still, like, um, whenever they go and clean up the cemetery, some of the fans go and clean up the cemetery with them. Uh, and it's just it it really kind of outgrew the film that that community. So I'm really excited to talk about that later on. That's
2: very. I feel cool. like I feel like our podcast and the we're geeks podcast should like have a joint road trip to experience I, this and like live stream it or document it you know i would
1: totally be down for this i might not be able to do it in 2019 but i think <laughs> 2020 Next i'd year. Be, be able to for sure um because i definitely want to take a road trip down to burkittsville and just see some of these sites i think that would be so much fun i think that would be i wonder if i would just scare the hell out of myself doing it but that would be a blast. Um, what do we think? You know, we I mentioned like the contradictory bits of info. The two fishermen. Oh, and what the woman also says when well, they ask, like, "Well, do you believe in the Blair Witch?" And the mom says, "I believe enough not to go in those woods," and I think that's such a perfect line and a perfect encapsulation of how folklore how old wives tales how campfire stories can act on the imagination and scare you without even knowing you're being scared
2: well we get scared with these with these kind of like myths and folklore tell us we get scared so much by them that they become real to us Mm -hmm. we're in the you know if you're in the woods and you hear all these things you're going to see something even if it's not there because they're so ingrained in your psyche Mm -hmm. that it's impossible. It's impossible not to be frightened by, by these stories. It's, it's impossible. You know, I'm, I'm pushing 40 at this point and the things that scared me when I was 12 still scare me because Mm -hmm. that's all I know. You know, it's, it's real in your head.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's like you still, like there are times where I'll go into a basement and that scared little boy from like when i was 10 11 12 years old didn't want to go into the dark still wonders if there's going to be something down there as ridiculous as that is when i'm in my 40s
2: no what's funny is and uh, like i don't even think i told my wife this because i I feel like she would make fun of me and she probably will because she's next to me so if i if you hear it laugh, that's what it is
3: oh she'll never know she'll never know
2: oh yeah right uh when i was a kid I always had this thing in my head that Michael Myers or someone would be behind me when I run upstairs. Mm -hmm. I I never walk upstairs my entire life. Last night, night, I I think my wife asked me to get something for her, something like that. And I went downstairs and I realized still, 38 years old, I run up the stairs every time Mm because I think somebody's going to get me. Like These things never go away. I don't walk up my stairs at, at my house. I have to run.
1: We usually keep our doors unlocked here. We're in a really quiet little farm town and oh. our our back door is usually unlocked. Oh. And there was me- there was a night about a couple weeks ago where my wife and I watched I think it was a couple episodes of Mindhunter together. I'm rewatching the first season with her oh, so she so can good. catch up on it. And after it was over, I went downstairs to get like a drink or something. And it was about bedtime and I'm like, you know what? I am going to lock the back sliding door tonight. And I'm also going to put in the little bar that prevents it from be- the lock being broken. You still, you know, and I'm like 44 years old and I'm like, no, nope, not doing this. These, tonight. These things get
2: in your head and it's impossible. Like my son yesterday was like, dad, Jason, Jason is in our backyard. And I know he wasn't, but I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say I ran to the window to make sure, right. you know, like, and I, I think, again, you know, people might think we're getting off track, but all of this goes back to the Blair Witch Project and how effective it is. Yeah. We don't see shit in this movie. Yeah. But it's... you feel like you do. Your mm-hmm. your, your psyche feels like you do, you know, because mm-hmm. we fill in the blanks. And there is not a mm-hmm. single movie that is as successful with doing that to its audience as mm-hmm. this film is. Yeah, and
1: part of it is, you know... I think. Another pair of characters that work really well in the movie are those two fishermen right before um, the trio kind of goes off into the woods for the last time. Because one of them believes, like, you know, you damn fool kids are going to go get yourself killed. And then the other one is like, ah, you're full of shit. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. So I think a lesser movie or a movie that wasn't as confident in itself, what it would do is say, nope, 100%, everybody believes the Blair Witch is real. Don't go in there you're screwed if you do what the blair witch does is for every single person that believes in the myth there's an equal and opposite reaction to someone who thinks this is all a bunch of hogwash and things that your grandmother would tell you to get you to go to bed at night and not act like a damn fool kid
2: and you know what that is that is that is fucking amazing filmmaking right there mm-hmm. because what that is is making the viewer feel like, you know what? It's probably not true. Mm-hmm. You, know, I, you know, I'm you know i living vicariously through this film. But at the same time, there are a good amount of people that don't believe the myth inside the movie. So I'm safe. And that is the best way to get under your skin little by little and scare the hell out of you is making you feel like you're safe. But the moment you hear something, you're like, shit, I'm not. Like, it's perfect. Exactly.
3: I really have nothing to add. You guys are <laughs> extremely eloquent. And, like, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a bumbling mess just because no, I no. love this movie so much. But um, you're not a
2: bumbling into- mess at all. You have added so much insight yeah. to this movie already. Absolutely. Like, it's great.
3: Well, I, I, I appreciate that. But I, I still think that my, my proficiency could do with some, some dusting off. But that's a topic for another podcast. Um, in, in terms of the fisherman, uh, to me, the fact that it's the last sort of main contact they have with people mm-hmm. before they go into the woods. And they are divided. So you, you go into the woods with a trio. Divided, yourself, as, as you mentioned. So you don't really know if, if they're going to find something or not. Obviously, because it's called the Blair Witch Project, something which is happening. But you don't know if it's real or not. So even really late into the film, because this is a few like a few good 20, 30 minutes into it,
4: mm-hmm. uh,
3: you, you're still on the fence. Okay, well, are, is it real or isn't? real Mm -hmm. this whole thing that's happening like what's going on and as you mentioned this duality of belief is is much more realistic than the uh, absolute truth of whether this thing exists or not and Mm -hmm. i would posit that the film is it's not like the film works despite not showing anything the film works because it doesn't show anything exactly and And it's a very important distinction to make because even films that came later, like much later, like Cloverfield, I think Cloverfield, despite some really annoying characters, it works because it doesn't show that much. Um, And that, leaving stuff to the imagination in an age where trailers give away the whole plot of the film, I think that's a little bit of a lost art that I wish we could get back
2: yeah oh totally and uh a lot one of the biggest reasons that a lot of people didn't like uh godzilla that came out a few years ago not the newest one but the one right before that is because it didn't show godzilla enough for them and that was i think that's the reason why i loved that godzilla
3: i I, want 100 percent on board with that
2: like and I, i i think films that are confident enough to be like you know what we're not going to put everything in the viewer's eyes. Let them fill in the blanks until they get it. And, you know, even sometimes we don't get it. With Blair Witch, I mean, we don't see it. We, you know what I mean? Like, And I think that's the magic of the film. And like mm-hmm. you said, it's, it's not it's not despite not showing anything. It's, it's the fact that they made the decision not to. And I think that that's, it makes it perfect. It's not just that, too. It's not that just you don't see anything. It's that the
1: characters don't see anything. And what this movie does, because it allows its actors to film everything, Blair Witch Project does something that's really smart and maybe wasn't. Maybe I don't know if they were completely aware of their intention when they did this or the effect that it would have. We've seen a lot of horror movies from the point of view of the killer. Obviously, you have um, Peeping Tom being the first instance of this. You have the opening um, shot of Halloween from the point of view of Michael Myers, and you have the shocking revelation that it's a six-year-old boy that's responsible for this pretty brutal murder. The first couple Friday the 13th movies are largely told from the perspective of the killers. And And also any Giallo film, you often get these POV shots of the killer. It puts the audience in the their shoes, and in some ways it allows the audience to root for these people because we see ourselves through their perspective. This is a movie you're seeing from the perspective of the victims. Everything is told in the perspective of Heather, Josh, and Michael, except for like 15 seconds at the beginning when Heather is filmed in her own apartment right before she leaves and her friend is filming her. Other than that, it's completely of their perspective overall. Mm -hmm. so not only do you have that you feel their fear when michael and joshua are screaming at heather they're screaming right at you the audience when michael starts to break down or joshua starts to break down when he's filming you as an audience member begin to break down You're getting berated as an audience member. You're getting put through the paces with them. You're getting worn down by proxy. It becomes impossible not to feel empathy for them if you have any degree of empathy as a person at all. And that Mm -hmm. to me is a completely different way of doing a horror movie um, compared to point of view from the killer's perspective. So it's a large part of why this movie works so well.
2: Well, that and, I mean, growing up, there were characters in horror films that I identified with so much. You know, I I think that Laurie Strode from Halloween will always be a character that I just feel that 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 is who I was growing up. But with that being said, a film like Blair Witch and especially the Blair Witch Project, you you're not only living vicariously through these characters because of their journey, but you are experiencing exactly what they're experiencing, like you said you feel what they feel when they're yelling at you you know you're holding the camera basically yeah. you feel like you're being yelled at it's it's an experience of it's it's not like i said it's not just living vicariously through your characters is experiencing the journey of the characters with mm-hmm. them and it's so fucking unique absolutely
3: Exactly. And that's that's when I when we started the podcast episode, I was talking about the immediacy between what goes on the screen mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and the audience. And that's exactly why I was talking about. You completely feel like you are part of the film and not only Heather, because she's a sort of the main camera person, actually, even though, uh, you know, Josh has the 16 millimeter. You see most of it through Heather's video camera. But. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you feel almost like you are the fourth member of the crew. And to me, the removal of that barrier, you know, the, that fourth wall in a way that, you know, I hadn't really seen before, uh, not by winking at the camera, but, you know, through sharing the experience, not as an observer, but as a victim of what, what's going on, to me, that 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 is the hallmark of why this movie works well and continues to have a huge impact on the way I do things and the way I feel about films.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And it's to me, it's a little. I know that part of the reason found, found footage found such an audience in the decade after this movie. I think as technology became cheaper to get and easier to use. You could, to some degree, replicate what you saw here, but I don't think it's ever been done as effectively as it was used here.
2: Well, it's because, I mean, and, you know, found footage is one of my least favorite subgenres, but Mm -hmm. I feel like I only because I think Blair Witch did it so well that uh, a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. But when you have films in the the subgenre found footage that work, it's because they make you feel like filming it is warranted. You know what I mean? I, I can never get on board with movies that it's just like, a, a, a killer's chasing you with a knife, but you're still turning around filming him. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, mm-hmm. it takes it takes me out of it. But the Blair Witch Project, you're there with them. Or certain segments, not the films as a whole, but for certain segments in the VHS film series work for mm-hmm. me. Because it feels warranted. You know, like the kids jason eisner's uh entry into the vhs the second one you know with the kids having a sleepover and the aliens come mm-hmm. you know like the kids have a gopro on the dog you know like these are these are things that like okay i understand why it's still filming a dog's yeah. not going to stop to think that take the camera off of him you right. know what i mean like or the 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 bicycle people in the second vhs where the zombies are coming after them you know the that's GoPro's right on, on their, their helmet head. yeah See, that makes sense to me, and I think that that is when it works. Whereas the Blair Witch Project, 100% of it works, because Mm -hmm. they're also documenting it, not only to make the documentary, but they're also documenting it, because in a lot of ways, you can tell they don't think they're going to get out of there. You know what I mean? Like, it makes sense to me.
3: And I think a lot of what makes most of the found footage films that fail, fail, is the fact that they believe that it is enough to make the found footage point of view thing happen from a technical point of view. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's the easiest part of the whole thing because you just turn on the camera and just point it at the actors with you behind it. So that's that's not the difficult part. The difficult part is making it believable that that situation would be filmed and that there is a, a backstory to the situation, which is why you know created the the lore of the Blair Witch Project and I to to what you were saying um, it works because of that it works because there is a reason for this camera to be on and you are given those reasons as soon as you you jump into the film Um, Mm -hmm. and and going back to Cloverfield uh, one of the things that to me don't really work about that film is the, you know, the reason why the, the filming continues and starts even, you know, from the beginning of the film. Um, so, and, and even the Paranormal Activity Series, going back to to it, um, it makes sense that people would want to film this strange things happening in their home, you know, and... Uh, it, it sort of sets up a world in which filming is not only allowed, but makes sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like the, the documentarian thing is a little bit played out by this point. Um, so we, we got to find as, as an audience and as filmmakers, we got to find a different way of making the camera valid as a character. Uh, in found footage films, and I think that that's where the fatigue is coming from, a lot of it at least, Um, is the fact that people are not believing the the reason behind why the camera is there. And I think that's why films that do work, like Creep, for example, which works beautifully, Um, it's because there's a reason for that camera to be there and then you want the camera to be there. Because you, wa- you want to know, like, what the fuck is this guy with the mask doing? Like, what's going to happen? Is he for real? Is he nuts? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, uh, the, the there must be a reason for that camera to be the character in the film that it should be for a found footage film. And I think oh. that's crucial.
2: Oh, definitely. And speaking on what you just said about Creep, that is definitely why that movie works. And uh, that's what I was so reluctant and kind of somewhat skeptical when creep 2 was announced because i was like well how are they going to recapture that but the idea of you know it being a youtube show of you know the the host needing something so she's filming all these experiences that works perfectly and i think out of every out of every found, uh, found footage kind of franchise or series so far i feel like the creep movies are the closest to to getting a kind of consistent vibe and and tone and just being successful in doing j- exactly what we're talking about
3: i completely agree i can yeah. go without 100 percent.
1: i would say that's yeah i would say that's very very close to being true i think maybe off the top of my head and it's not quite a pure found footage movie. It's more documentary style, but the first last exorcism movie. Um, oh,
3: great. I know oh, that, yes.
1: I think that's one of the best examples of this genre in terms of being scary as hell. And it cheats a little bit, like there's music and and a whatnot. But I think that you can go through and fill in some blanks as to why, like I see that movie as a recruitment video at the end of the day like that is shot as a recruitment video for the people that are responsible for the events of that movie at the end of the day like that's why it looks like it does uh and sounds like it does at the end of that movie
2: overall well, i also think that a lot of filmmakers our studios think that its audience is kind of they the audience is kind of dumb at at times like mm-hmm. like like throwaway lines would make us be like oh that's why it's still filming i mm-hmm. like cloverfield a lot just from like an entertain entertainment's perspective but the thing that drives me nuts about cloverfield is even another character asks they ask tj miller's character why he's still filming and he's mm-hmm. like uh, uh. This yeah.
4: Needs
2: to be do- this uh. This needs to be documented. Mm-hmm. It's like yes. no, it doesn't. There's a fucking monster no. chasing you. Throw the camera down. Yeah. You know what no. I mean? Like let someone else know, do that. Yeah. It's it's like that movie. It, it, I like it, but it drives me nuts at the same time. I I you know, and I'm not going to obviously talk too much about Cloverfield, but I like it because it's not even a monster movie. It's a love story disguised as a monster movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It It works for me on that. But as far as, like, found footage kind of stuff, I, I think that, and I don't want to see a found footage movie where the the, the footage looks like a J.J. Abrams movie, basically. You know
4: what I mean? Like,
2: like, fuck, there's no way those guys had cameras that would look that great. No. You know, I love that about Blair Witch. It looks grimy and gritty as hell, and that makes it even that more effective. It feels like something that I could have shot. And I don't mean that as a compliment to me. I mean that, like, that is, it feels like something that we would be able to find, like, to get access to. And that makes it more relatable.
1: Well, in part, you do that because you're not having, the filmmakers aren't the ones that are filming the movie. So all of these, you're not having professional filmmakers record everything. Everything is left in the hands of Mike, josh and heather josh and uh, heather in particular overall and that's why you have that shakiness that's why things aren't centered perfectly you are getting what looks like the kind of footage like you said jerry that someone who's not a professional camera person is going to actually do
0: um that's
2: that's that's also uh, a big like topic that that people seem to bitch about when it came out that oh it's shaky that they're running around well it's maybe it's because heather donahue isn't a fucking professional camera right. person you know what i mean right. like i i think that's part of its charm
3: mm-hmm. i absolutely agree and by the way i have an inner ear disorder so i i'm busy the whole like i've been busy since 2006 mm-hmm. and blair Witch project does not make me sick so uh you know if you're watching something else, like I've recently watched another found footage, I watch a lot of found footage. But I've recently watched another film that really did make me like, okay, this is getting a little twitchy. It um, chapter two? No, 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 no. Oh, please, <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that yet, uh, so um, I, I can't comment on that. But mm-hmm. there was, and it was recent too. Like it was a recent film, um, and it was twitchy as hell. And that one did make me sick. And I think filmmakers were kind of relying on the, on on movement to hide and, and to create that sense of wonder. But to me, it just didn't work. Uh, mm-hmm. In the Blair Witch Project, it's accidental. Uh, it's because she doesn't know how to operate. It, Josh's footage is rock solid because mm-hmm. he's the camera operator. Right. But Heather is just, you know, filming just to have something to look back on. And it it completely makes sense within the context of the film.
1: I like, you know, Jerry, you had mentioned part of the reason found footage can fail sometimes is because there's not a pertinent reason to still be filming. And I think that part of the reason why this movie works so well is the reason that you're given makes sense and is a reasonable explanation why you know and there are points where joshua and michael are begging heather please stop filming please stop filming put the camera away stop doing this and you can understand why they're doing that and heather's revelation and her like this completely blistering honest moment when she says it's all i have left It's used as a coping mechanism, and as Josh says, it doesn't quite feel real when you're looking at it through this viewfinder. Its reality is just off enough where you feel like you're a character in a story, and characters and stories usually have happy endings. And I think that's a really wonderful and plausible explanation for why they filmed this whole movie. Uh,
3: Definitely. That's that's a brilliant way of looking at it
1: every now and then i have a good idea uh, <laughs> so, so what do we think of the scares in this movie let's talk a little bit about a few of the key moments overall uh because for people that say like well nothing happens in this movie true in a traditional sense um especially now when you're kind of conditioned for jump scares every few minutes or so Everything is more psychological here.
2: I think one of the reasons that the film hit me as hard as it did when I watched it is there is a lot of violation that happens within that movie. Mm -hmm. And that might sound weird, but if you're camping or not even camping. There was a time a few years ago where I left my apartment. You know, I lived by myself. I left my apartment to go somewhere. I came back. The door was open. And my stuff was everywhere. Mm-hmm. There is a sense of violation that happens when you feel like somebody has been in your area. Or if you go camping, you get up and there's stick figures all around where you are. Mm-hmm. Somebody has been there. Like, that is scarier to me than any jump scares could ever be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's that sense of your personal space just being violated. You know, and I think that that is one of the scariest moments in the film is where they find the stick figures. Like Mm -hmm. it's it's so fucking scary. Like I'm getting I'm uncomfortable talking about it right now.
3: To me, uh, the scariest scene is the one where the hands are on the tents. Mm. Uh, Yeah. Like they're they're filming from inside the tents, and they could see hands because that's again that's so immediate. Like it's literally nylon between you and your perpetrator and it's it's absolutely terrifying like you mentioned i had my (laughs) i had something stolen from my yard a couple months ago and my wife and i were like weirded out for weeks because we thought okay if they came in to steal that which isn't that valuable like what the hell are they willing to do to steal our stuff that is worth something like, what, what are they willing to do to, to fuck with our personal space and yeah. get away with it, you know? And when you put yourself in that situation, and let's, let's get real. There are some really um, very nicely set up scares in the film. And I think the, the tent scene is one of them. I think the, the finger in the, in the, in the piece of shirt is another one. Um, I think if you, if you had that accompanied in a narrative way with John Williams' score behind it, people would not complain that that wasn't scary. Mm-hmm. It's just because it's not scary in the traditional mm-hmm. narrative way that we're used to seeing it in film, that people do not respond the same way. Uh, but to me, that's terrifying. Like, if I woke up and found a finger in front of my house tomorrow, mm-hmm. like, I would get freaked out. Yeah. yeah
1: so and i think jerry like you said with the let's talk about those stick figures a minute and i think part of the reason that's so effective is not just because you're finding stick figures but the sheer volume and sheer randomness of when you're walking in and it's a virtual forest of these things so it's either one of two things a whole group of people is hunting you down because you would need a lot of people to do that in such a short time, or there's some supernatural explanation? And either way, you're going to be either completely unnerved. Yes, that's a you great know, word. That
3: sense of Let's give a shout out hopeless. again to Ben Rock, who designed this stick figure. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, I was actually uh, there's a Facebook group for the for fans of the Blair Witch Project, and all of the filmmakers are in it. So mm-hmm. it's it's an absolute hoot. Um, And we were talking about the stick figures recently, um, and while Eduardo Sanchez and and Daniel Marek had the idea of having some sort of uh, humanesque figure, Mm -hmm. the actual design was done by Ben Rock. And it's so, I don't know, it's perennially cool. Like, it's so simple and so effective. And, and it, it looks it, like your looks on a cross. great. Yeah. It looks
2: great. Like it's one of the most like I think that that design is one of the most underrated like sigils or or images in horror. You know, like it's so iconic to me. Like you if you see that anywhere, you know exactly what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's I don't think people talk enough about how great that is. You know, we have so many people talking about uh i don't know like the 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 curse of thorn symbol in halloween you know (laughs) (laughs) like halloween six halloween six gets gets so many people talking about that image Mm -hmm. but like how often do you hear people talk about how iconic the stick figure is no
3: and let's remember that it's an original design it's not like a pentagram that you can just slap on something and call it a a witchy witchy thing like this was something that Eventually became part of the campaign and and like the marketing side of things, mm-hmm. and even recently when the the last uh, video game released, a couple of it was announced. I think it was uh, Gamescom. No, it was before that. Well, it was announced during a games conference, and as soon as that symbol, because it was shown first before the the title of the thing, you knew that this was a Blair Witch game, mm-hmm. and. Nobody was expecting it, because it was 20 years after this this thing was relevant. But there it was. There was this stick figure, and you mm-hmm. knew, okay, shit, we're going back into the woods. And mm-hmm. it's an amazing piece of design.
1: It's it's definitely... A, it, and it's like, it's one of the more my icon, iconic horror designs. And similar to in 2016, when the Blair Witch came out, and it was originally thought to be called The Woods... Um, when it was revealed nope this is actually a secret sequel to the blair witch project they brought together like the posters and it formed like a clearing in the trees that formed that symbol it's like oh and as soon what's, as you see that you know you're like cool? oh shit yeah
2: what's cool about that whole experience is they marketed it as the woods an upcoming movie you know At comic-con we're gonna have a screening of the woods nobody knew it was blair witch while the people were in the theater, they changed all the designs and the posters outside of the theater to finally reveal that it was Blair Witch to everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, that is awesome. And the yes. only thing that lost that experience a little bit to me is a friend of mine is an actor and was involved in some Adam Wingard movies. Mm-hmm. And this friend of mine told me a couple months before the reveal, it's like, hey, you know, that's a Blair Witch sequel, right? And I was like, Dude, God Don't damn it. do that to me. God, damn damn it. Wow. God damn it. I don't yeah. want that. Yeah. No, it's unfriended. Um, no, no, like it's it's, you know, he's he's a great person, so I have nothing but respect. And mm-hmm. I, I almost laughed at like, oh my god, I can't believe that, you know? Because so he's, he's, well, so he's I think coming what up. happened was if I if I remember correctly, what happened was I kept telling this friend how much the 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 movie and the marketing reminded me of Blair Witch, and mm-hmm. it was kind of like like not upsetting me, but I was just like, are we getting a Blair Witch ripoff? What's going on? He's like, well, Jerry. You know, that's a Blair Witch sequel, right? And I was like, God damn it. So it wasn't like a, hey, I'm spoiling it. It was like, mm-hmm. okay, they're not ripping off the Blair Witch. They're making one. So chill.
1: All right, so other scares in this movie. All right, let's talk about that tense scene. <laughs> so I think part of what works, too, like you have, like, what if they ran, because they, again, they don't really have any direction. What if they ran towards the noises? You know, and you saw the people hitting it with their hands, like part of just happy accidents. Um, the fact that Heather like looks at it's just what the fuck is that? But you never see what's out there. So you're I believe what it was is what is one of their friends or production assistants dressed in all white, just looking kind of creepy and shady, hanging out uh, just out of line of camera overall. Um, but then your mind fills in the blanks like they don't return to their tent. So, you know. They're sitting out there in the dark, in the cold for a few hours, being hunted down. Um, and your mind just starts going in all these weird directions. Like, that's part of the reason why that scene is so, works so well. Part of it is that visceral feeling of, like, you said, hands pressing on that really thin piece of nylon that separates you. And anyone who's seen a Friday the 13th movie and has seen Jason cut through those tents knows there's no real protection there. And then the other part of it is the thought of them, hey, my wife is outside walking the dog. Uh, anyway, a uh, part of Ooh. that is um, just Ooh. knowing
2: that they're out there alone. What's scary about that is even from one hand on the tent, whether it was somebody just fucking with them or it was the real you know, supernatural elements, after you as a camper or a person in general, after you see someone's hands on the other side, you will not sleep that night. It is guaranteed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like that fear sets in and you start thinking the worst thoughts possible. And I, I feel like it is such good filmmaking. And I think that maybe that isn't even appreciated as much as it should, because yeah, you know, the Blair, Witch ended up being this big horror cultural zeitgeist and, you know, Uh, you know the most uh, successful independent film of all time you know it dethroned halloween for that Mm -hmm. so yeah we we think about it as that and we we think about pop culture and we think of blair Witch, how we all thought it was real and that kind of stuff but i feel like as as horror fans a lot of us don't give sanchez and myrick and you know like marcos was saying ben rock enough credit for building that mythology and and just even from a filmmaking perspective, those things are so successful in creating fear that it beats any jump scare, you know, any day of the week.
3: Mm-hmm. I 100% agree.
2: I, I cannot agree more, absolutely. It's,
1: it makes and part of two, like it gets to the end of the movie when they're running through that cabin and you see and we'll talk more in depth about this in a moment, but all of those little handprints on the wall,
5: and Mm -hmm. you
1: realize kind of where you are at that point. And it's a movie that can scare you, even if you're paying a little bit of attention to what's going on. But if you're paying attention to all the details and everything that came before it, that experience becomes so much more rewarding and so much scarier for the viewer overall. But it's also a movie that can, you know, I think... Jerry, you said before, there was a sense of hopelessness. Um, The moment where they circle back around after 15 hours of hiking in the woods, you know, and part of the thing is like, you forgive a lot in this movie because there are moments where if you're kind of looking around at the surroundings, this is not a very densely populated set of woods. Like there are clearings here and there that you can make out. You can hear airplanes traveling overhead as they're hiking. That's just part of the nature of it. But when they circle back around on that log and there's no way they should have, just seeing this uprooted tree becomes a very viscerally scary moment because you feel that sense of hopelessness and being how any thought of them getting out is really snuffed out at that
2: moment. They've gone from being lost to being trapped. Well, it's, it's, it's a combination of two things, in my opinion, and, and both both uh, utilize the, the hopelessness of it. The first one is you don't think they're going to get out. You as an audience member, you feel hopeless too. You know this will not work mm-hmm. out well. But the other flip side to it, and I might be the only person in history that has compared these two films together. The Blair Witch Project, to me, watching it reminds me of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In the mm-hmm. sense, in the sense that if they did get out, you know that that tagline for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, uh, who will survive and what will be left of them? They're not getting out of that one way or the other. They're right. either not getting out because they're going to die, or they're not getting out because they will never ever escape what is being left with them if they do get out. You know what I mean? Excellent. Mm-hmm. Like, like it, it's it's just it it works so well with like I said that hopelessness.
3: And I think that that's a brilliant point. And I think that's something that they really wanted to emphasize. And we can see that intention in the Burkittsville 7, because that's exactly sort of what eventually happened in that side story. You know, what happened mm-hmm. to, to people who were subjected to this? Not, mm-hmm. not directly the same situation, but uh, exposed to sort of this horror radiation thing that was happening in Berksville. And it, it is something that works, like you said, so well uh, in, the hope, in creating this sense of hopelessness that you, you just know that you're never going to be the same again. And again, because you're part of the film, uh, because there's so much intimacy between you and the actors, you just feel like in your gut that something is not right and that it's not Sorry, that it yeah. was never going to be right again.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. So brilliant.
1: Mm-hmm. Part of it too, I think, is that heather donahue josh leonard and michael williams do such an incredible job of interacting with one another um they're react not only acting but like you said jerry reacting to one another where you feel that camaraderie early on but heather always feels like a little bit outside and she always feels like she has something to prove to the other two where they never completely buy in to what she is trying to do here and they're almost like humoring her and you can feel her really pushing and really trying overall and then that moment where My, where Michael says I kick that fucking map into the creek um, overall and then the way like Heather just cracks at that point uh, and Joshua just, from that point on, almost checks out of the movie. Um, yeah. His mind just snaps overall. And it's just fascinating to watch these characters break down psychologically.
3: And it's, it's it is. such a tour de force from an acting perspective, considering they, they had very little interaction before mm-hmm. shooting started. So you... It, it's incredible to me, and I, I see that we have some notes about uh, how, what became of, of the actors after the mm-hmm. film. Um, it's incredible to me that they didn't shoot up and become mm-hmm. you know, international superstars because
4: yeah.
3: the, the, uh, the amount of raw talent and acting ability that was required for those you know, characters to come to life, uh, I don't think it could have been pulled off by mm-hmm. just anybody. And uh, yeah, go ahead. I
2: I agree hundred uh, percent. You know, I I wasn't surprised when Joshua Leonard went on to have a very good career. Uh, you know, I, I interviewed him a few years ago uh, when the Town That Dreaded Sundown came out, and it was like a dream come true. You know, it was it was it was talking to Josh from the Blair Witch mm-hmm. Project. Yeah. And like I've I followed his I've followed his career since then, and he's such a good actor. You know, Heather's kind of doing the marijuana thing now, which is great. <laughs> I mean, her yeah. book. Her book is really good. I, I enjoy it. Well, we'll uh, you know, I I will
1: definitely talk about what became of her a bit and mm-hmm. like the pressures and real unfair treatment that she kind of received following this movie. I definitely want to talk about that when we talk about the legacy of this Yeah, movie. yeah, yeah, let's do that. So, um I really like, you know, the more and more I watch this, I really like Mike uh in this movie overall cuz his character really shifts he you know like heather like calls him little mike i'm really pleasantly surprised by little mikey which is so insulting like oh every time i hear that i cringe and i'm like all right maybe you deserve a little bit of the criticism you get heather because that's kind of like that's a really weird thing to say um he goes from being very antagonistic early on um And being the one who's like, I just want to go home. This is bullshit. Let's get out of here. And he really presses to being the person that tries to keep the group together, tries to – and maybe part of that is overcompensating for the fact that he's the one that kicked the map in the lake. But really that map – was useless as fucking used toilet paper let's be really honest with one well,
4: that,
2: not only just useless but how many times in life and maybe i'm just speaking for myself have we done stupid little things like that and then as mm-hmm. soon as we do it we're like oh no
4: mm-hmm.
2: you know like it's yeah. happened to me so many times like i would have kicked the map out of frustration mm-hmm. and then afterwards i'm like i would have been like oh no what did i do yeah. and kept it to myself yeah i feel like it i feel like he was frustrated, but also it was kind of like a thing of accidentally just doing mm-hmm. something out of anger and just instantly no. saying like, "Shit, what have I done?"
3: Actually, He's all- if I can interrupt with a little a uh, another little bit of my shitty nobody cares trivia.
4: No, we The actual
3: map movie. that the they had was, the was useless.
2: Mm-hmm. Really?
3: Yeah. So it was it, it was it a frustrated. Had, yeah, it had no useful information whatsoever <laughs> on it. Um, and it, it was given to them by Ben, and we, they were talking about it just recently uh, publicly on, on, the, on the group, and uh, he said, you know, for the record, just to clear Mike's name, uh, that map was fucking useless, as, uh, just like you said, it was useless as toilet paper. So, uh, you know, there was something to Mike kicking it into the river after all, because it, it, it mm-hmm. just wasn't going to help them from the get-go. God,
2: right. that is crazy.
1: but but not only that like if you're off trail hiking and you don't even know where you are to like, there's really not because when you're you can kind of see a little bit of the map, like there's not much there that would tell you where you are. Like, I'd kind of find it funny when Josh is like he tries to play alpha male, and it's just like just dirty fucking hippie. You're like, oh, just like <laughs> like Josh is the kind of dude I would like when Jerry Garcia died, my sister and I were driving around and we saw a bunch of deadheads, and we like, Jerry's fucking dead, because we were assholes back then. Like, just this dirty hippie. <laughs> Hippie, trying to be like alpha male like well let me look at the map i'll tell you where we are like josh fuck you dude you don't know you don't
2: you know to you don't look, look at the map, map. like yeah. no like i think that's why i like the character of josh so much is because in a lot of ways i'm a lot like that character mm-hmm. like you know if if something was wrong i would be the person to be like well let me look at it having never looked at a map in my life
3: yeah exactly That'd yeah, that. be fucking me. 100%. <laughs> yeah. And I think it' it's funny because you you latched on to a, a, a character. Whenever you watch the film, you you if you really connect with it, you are either Josh, Heather, or Mike. And uh, for me, I was also just Josh. like I, I wanted to be the voice of reason and like, mm-hmm. you know, who the fuck is she to tell me where to go and uh, stop fucking filming? I, I have the camera. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm boss. You know, well, but...
2: that, Josh Josh also had that really great mix. You know,
3: yeah. <laughs> he really had, he really had that
2: great musical mix. So
3: well, it, I, it did become a bestseller. <laughs> so you gotta give him like <laughs> he's a regular yeah, time a of cow, You know,
1: <laughs> so but I love when he's like, if I have to yell at you again, um, and he just gives her the finger, like he and at the point where he's like. You kind of know that he's a doofus when he's like looking at the camera going, Oh yeah, we're gonna do it in meters. He's like, Well, we don't use meters, we use feet. He's like, Yeah, but this camera has meters on it. She like, Well, what about the ones over there? Well, those are feet. It's like, have you used this camera? Well, maybe once. Just kind of like he's just a doofus. Um and he's that works the one so well. And he's the one that his he just disconnects from them very quickly. Uh, and Mike actually recognizes that before Heather does, where he's like, give him a minute when he's like lying out in the woods and is like, give him a minute. He's really he's not all there at this point. And you, almost, you know, there's part of the one of the readings of this movie is that it's Josh at the end. That Josh is actually snapped, and he's the one that lures them in, and he's the one that kills them, and who knows? I don't buy into that reading, but I can understand why people do. Um, he's also, and I think we'll talk about this more. When we talk about um, the treatment of Heather. He is needlessly cruel to Heather in that scene where he's pointing the camera at her, and he's like. You know, you're lost in the woods, you're hungry, you're alone. What do you do? And she starts breaking down and crying. And what really makes that scene punctuates the cruelty of that is he stops talking. It's quiet for a few moments. He's like, are you going to write us a happy ending, Heather? And she just runs off in tears like he's cruel in that moment. And it's like that's when you're kind of like, you know how fucked they are because they can no longer function as a, a unit.
2: No, they completely turn on each other. And it's such an interesting arc to watch,
4: mm-hmm.
2: you know, because they start out like very like, you know, pretty like stoked on the whole yep. experience, you they're know, like,
1: together, they're you know, making jokes in the supermarket,
2: you know, like, well, hey, Mike, welcome aboard kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. like and all this stuff. And by the end of the movie, they're so fractured. And, you know, speaking on the thing where Josh is just kind of lost it. You know, there, there have been so many times in my life where there's you're facing these just insane, insanely difficult things in your life to where you get to the point where you're like, I don't know how to feel anymore. You mm-hmm. know, whether it's good, it's, it's not good, it's not bad. It's just almost like a nothingness. And yeah. that's what it reminds me of every single time I watch this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like he snapped to the point where, like, it's Josh that did it. Not at all. I've never bought no. that. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's just to the point where it's just so hopeless that he's just like, I can't fulfill anything right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, me, it's interesting.
3: The, yeah, to me, the reason why that, that scene with Josh uh, and Heather work so well is because I can, I don't know about you guys, but I can personally see myself being that much of an asshole to her if I mm-hmm. was in that situation. And it's not because I'm an asshole, naturally, but because I know the situation is that dire that it would turn me into the shittiest version of myself
4: mm-hmm. towards
3: somebody who you know, I was previously very friendly with. And maybe that's just me being a secret asshole, but the <laughs> truth is that this, being in a very shitty situation can turn a, a good person into a shitty person really quickly. And obviously there are some bounds and and some caveats to that, but you cannot really judge Josh as a person based on how he acts in a situation of extreme hardship. Oh,
2: not at all. Not at all. I think think as human beings, we've all been there, you know, like uh, without going into detail, obviously, like my wife and I went through some stuff a few months ago. And it brought out, I think, the absolute worst in us because we didn't know how to react to that. It wasn't that either of us were angry at each other or mad at each other for anything. It's just the situation was so just hopeless feeling that, you know, you don't, you you know, you're not in control of kind of what you say or you react because you're so trying so desperately to, like, fix it. Or in, in your own head, you're trying to fix it. Josh is trying to fix it in his own head how do we get out of this while feeling like we're never going to get out of this. Like I don't, I don't judge Josh whatsoever. I think watching that movie, Mm -hmm. I I think it's a good film that maybe doesn't get enough credit for being a really good character study Mm -hmm. of what would happen when
3: you're lost. You know, I completely agree with that. Yeah.
2: So Marcos, you might be able
1: to speak on this a little bit. My understanding is that initially it was going to be Mike that was going to disappear. And that Heather and Josh got to the point where they were sniping so much during the filming that an audible was called and it was going to be Josh and Josh is the one they had disappear on day six out of eight or five out of seven.
3: I, I have no information other than that. Um, I have no true Mm -hmm. uh, like insider's knowledge. However, it was noted in the material that I was researching for a piece I did recently mm-hmm. uh, on the Blair Witch Project and on Eduardo Sanchez in particular that they were, like, they were real sparks. The, there was mm-hmm. some acting and then some very real uh, mm-hmm. interaction between Josh and Heather. As to whether that influenced the, the way it was shot in the end, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, like... A lot of their reactions were real, um, like we mentioned, and that's the reason why the the filming works. But I have no idea whether Mike was supposed to disappear or not.
1: That's, yeah, that's my understanding of it. And you can see a little bit of an, that antagonism from the first moment when Josh shows up and she's like, oh, it's Mr. Punctuality. Like he's already late and she's already pissed off and they're already kind of sniping a little bit from the first moment they interact. And it only goes downhill from there. After a brief peek early on, as soon as things looked uh, a little bit dire, like they really go at it. And when he disappears, I think you see Heather and Mike bond in a really real way. Um, I don't think that you would get the raw emotional realness of Heather's confessional at the end. If Josh had still been part of the picture, I think that having those two days without him there and without Her and Michael don't snipe her and Michael really try to work with one another and comfort one another. There's that moment where the camera just shows them with their arms around one another. And it's not sexual, which is another thing I think this film gets, should get credit for. Oh yes. There's no sexualization of Heather. There's no sexual tension. There's no like, we're going to fight over this woman at all. It's they all interact as peers with one another. Um, and I think that if Josh had still been part of the picture, you may not have gotten that realness, that kind of raw emotion from Heather at the end. Because I would have been like, fuck this dude. Let him, whatever well, happens, happens.
2: Another thing that I feel is so just effective and successful in that whole sequence is I, you know, it's. Basically became a meme before memes were a thing, you know, with Heather's Mm -hmm. confessional. You know, every parody movie tried to, you know, knock it off as a joke. You know, there's TV shows that were kind of like poking Mm -hmm. fun at her confessional thing. But what that moment is to me is the realization, because Josh has been gone for a couple days, the realization of this is the moment where I realize that not only can something Really happened to us, but that something is going to happen to yeah. us.
0: I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom, and I'm sorry to everyone. I was very naive. I am so, so sorry for everything that has happened, because in spite of what Mike says now, it is my fault, because it was my project, and I insisted, I insisted on everything. I insisted that we weren't lost. I insisted that we keep going. I insisted that we walk south everything had to be my way and this is where we've ended up and it's all because of me that we're here now hungry and cold and hunted I love you mom and dad my eyes i'm scared to open them
1: she uses the word hunted we're out here we're cold we're tired we're hungry
2: we're being hunted she knows that this is the end and i think though that, that that moment became kind of a joke to a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most effective scenes in horror films in history. I, I completely
3: I th- agree. Yeah. I it's think-
2: so honest and real that it's just it's hard not to feel your heartstrings just being tugged out.
3: Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And I think it's such an from an acting standpoint, it's so underrated. Uh, just because it became a meme afterwards and and people focus on this uh, uh, like on the snod and stuff, uh, you know, it's not like you they placed it there in post-production. you know, that was real. Yep. Like she was she was for real breaking mm-hmm. down. Um, and it takes a special kind of fucked up to get an actor yeah. to go to that place. Um, And I think and a special kind of actor to react in the way that she did. And it it really sort of brings home, as you mentioned, Jerry, the the whole situation that it is uh, an inescapable situation that sadly we're probably not going to get out of.
1: And I think too, like, it's a happy accident that the camera is so close up on her face from the nose up. I believe she thought she had herself in pretty good frame. And my understanding is when they first received that footage, the directors were like, eh, are we going to have to do this over? (laughs) And I think they were smart enough to realize, like, no, this is what works. Like, this is what really works. And it's so having that just put in so tight, you know. And I think part of the reason why this scene is parodied so mercilessly or was at that time um, is because it's so effective because it makes you so uncomfortable as an audience member to confront that amount of real emotion and raw emotion in a scene your reaction is going to be this is too real therefore i have to poke fun at it to put distance from it to make myself feel comfortable
2: well i feel like in in films that deal with kind of a hopeless uh wrap-up at the end I, I feel like there's three different ways you could approach it that we see. There's one where things would get hopeless, but hey, I got a machine gun, I'm gonna get out of it. And that's that's something I find infinitely difficult to get on board with. Mm-hmm. Then there's then there's like John Carpenter's the thing, where Kurt Russell and you know Keith David, they know that one of one of them is the thing. They know mm-hmm. that they whoever isn't the thing knows that I'm not gonna get out of this. So they just sit there and they drink together. And that's the end. You know, it's kind of like giving up, but kind of being like, well, that's it. And then there's Heather, who just breaks down. And that is the kind of film that, as a filmmaker, I just aspire to make something Mm -hmm. with honesty. And I, I feel like that's another thing that Blair Witch Project doesn't get enough credit for. It's such an honest look at the way that we deal with things. Mm -hmm. Take the witch out of it. Take the supernatural elements out of it. We get a character study. And you know what? I finally found a way to work into my final chapter thing I see on every episode. I always say that if you take Jason out of the final chapter, it's still a great coming-of-age movie. Well, guess what, guys? I got a new one. If you take the Blair Witch out of the Blair Witch Project, you got a great character study. That is my new one. I'm sticking to it. You're going to work
1: that that in every episode we ever do. So I want to talk a little bit about the last scene of the movie. Um, I want to talk a bit about finding Rustin Parr's cabin um, and how effective that is as a closing scene because that still
2: scares the hell out of me to this day. Well, yeah, I I, I think it's one of the scariest endings around. And plus, like, it's it's an interesting idea going back to what Parr said, you know, the, the ghost of the witch told him to do it. It's kind of interesting that that's kind of where it leads to, you know. That's that's another reason why I don't feel like Josh did it. You know, I, I've never liked that theory. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think Parr was right. I, I do think it's the Blair Witch. And I, I think that that's a little, little easier to, to get on board with.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, just just as a as a point of interest again uh, the filmmakers have recently uh talked about the the theory about josh uh uh-huh. and about uh, and also about the theory about both of them uh both josh and Mike alluring heather into the woods um and yeah uh the the witch is real basically so uh-huh. uh from the horse's mouth uh so, so to speak, the, the Witch is very much real. For me, yep. uh, the, it works on a number of levels, uh, not least because it almost feels like it's, it's stuck in another place in time.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and that's explored further into in, in the third film um the the whole idea of this endless time loop sort of thing and and you know uh out of place timelines kind of thing um and i think the 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 brilliant thing about Rustin Parr's house is that it brings together the whole backstory of of where we started uh back into front and center you know um throughout the sort of middle section of the film we were left with most of the action so to speak the mm-hmm. the, the interaction between the characters and the lore is left behind but by the end when we get to rusting sparse Rustin Spars rusting Par's house uh, everything is brought back into sharp sharp relief like this is mm-hmm. real this is happening this is the house and Uh, You know, we we don't know what's going to happen, but we know it's not going to be good. And and to me, that's why it works. It's such a neat little bow on top of, of the story. And it works really, really well
1: part of why this scene works so good is what immediately came before it, where Heather discovers a little bundle that has Josh's tongue and some teeth in it. Um, yeah. And what's funny about that scene is I think that's one of the times they had her go back and actually refilm, because when she first sees it, she's like, just throws, like, nope, not looking at this, and throws it to the side.
4: And I think <laughs> they had
1: her, like, no, you actually have to open this, and we need to see what's in there. So when well, that's she hears... Great. You know, you hear Josh screaming the night before it's found, and it's this gurgling sound, and it's almost inhuman, like he's being tortured. And then the next night, he's very clearly... Calling out, and there's folklore around witches that witches will steal your tongue and teeth in order to mimic the victim's voice at that point. Um, So, you know, that that ties into kind of the folklore of, of witches and witchcraft and whatnot. But, you know, like, and even Heather says, like, this can't be real, like, this cannot be happening right now. But at this point, you're seven days in the woods, you stumble upon something that is not trees and logs and leaves and creeks, and they run to it. Um, it's decrepit and as terrifying as that place looks from the outside. Uh, there's, no, I wouldn't go into that thing for a million dollars at that point, I think, as I say from the safety behind my microphone. Um, the other reason that scene works so well is once Mike is knocked over the head and his, you know, he has the dat and he has that camera... You hear Heather's screams, but she's holding the 16 millimeter camera that doesn't have any audio to it. So you hear her screaming um, Mike's name over and over again, but it's presented from a distance. It's Mike's camera, or sorry, Mike's dat that is in the basement that is picking up those screams. And that's terrifying because it sounds, like you said, being out of place and out of time, her screams feel so disconnected from what you're actually seeing on screen at that moment.
3: Not only that, but you feel that she's coming towards your your microphone, right? She's coming Mm -hmm. towards that. So you know something happened to Mike and you know that Heather is on her way to you. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely terrifying because you are you want to say, Heather, stop, you know, don't come any any nearer. And yet, inevitably, she comes, she comes, she comes. And then we have the, the famous scene where where the camera is mm-hmm. dropped. Um, just as, as, as a little fun fact, uh, you know, I love I love those. Um, when you were mentioning that you wouldn't go into the house, uh, actually when, when Ben Rock, uh, it, it seems like I'm sponsored by Ben Rock, but I mm-hmm. swear I'm not. Um, uh, he was the one who, who, who got the children to paint the, the house and he, mm-hmm. he prepared the house for, for filming. And he said that uh, there were a couple of days where he had to stay there uh, at night, not, not overnight, nope. but to, to work at night. And he was like properly terrified of stay, of, of being in that place, and the, that it was really, really scary, and uh, and it had a real vibe to it. So, uh, j- just thought I would throw that out there that you were mm-hmm. not alone. Even the makers of the film did not feel the whole that good yeah. about the location.
2: No, thank well, you. Not well, doing even that. well, even though that he knew that it was fake because he created the mythology. I could, you know, as as a as an artist or a writer. When you create something, it kind of becomes real to you in a way,
4: you Definitely. know.
2: So, so being out there at night, knowing this whole mythology that yeah, he created it but at the same time, it, you know, it's a reference in his own head. Like, I can't imagine doing that. It's like, I, you know, if I would, if I were asked to do that, I would have been like, well, you know, guys, good luck on your movie. It was nice knowing yep. you. I'm out.
1: Yeah, I'm out. Of <laughs> like, here at this no. Point. <laughs> and then we have this moment of Heather discovering. Uh, Mike standing in the corner and if you've been paying attention your mind immediately goes oh shit that's just like those kids from earlier in the movie and that guy was killing them and one would standing in the corner and as you're processing that she something happens to her she's hit she's struck she falls down the camera hits the ground and it has that perfect judder Uh, where it's just going out of focus and it's like the frames are just kind of like popping in and out at that point and then it ends and it's just so rewarding of an ending. Um, It's absolutely perfect. Marcos, why don't you speak a little bit about some of the endings that were refilmed for the movie when Artisan picked it up and wanted to see it reshot.
3: Sure. Um, One of the things that Artisan was kind of iffy about was the lack of action uh, in the ending and the fact that you couldn't really see what happened to Mike. So um, a couple of the endings feature Mike more prominently. There was one where he's tied to the huge uh, stick figure that they made. Like a, There was one that was like eight feet tall or something. And uh, basically, they tied him to it. And when Heather comes into the basement, he's tied there. And he's looking straight at her and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it didn't, in the end, I mean, they, they filmed it, obviously, after they, they got bought at Sundance. Um, and it really just didn't feel like a satisfactory ending to uh, a film that is mostly about the unseen uh, danger. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really to, to bring into focus that what the, what the alternative endings tried to do was to bring into sharp focus what could have happened to Mike um specifically uh in terms of you know being either tied or cursed or disfigured stuff like that uh however none of them ended up on the film and uh artisan decided to keep the original ending
1: yeah and uh, you can watch the alternate endings on the um blair witch uh, special edition dvd or blu-ray and they Don't work nearly as effectively there. The the idea like the one of like Mike being tied to the stick figure and kind of floating out there. It looks really goofy. Like when you actually see it in action, it's almost it's almost comical at that point. Um, Yeah, I think the idea because the idea of just like finding someone if you want to freak somebody out, go if you're ever in a basement, just go stand in a corner and don't move that's gonna freak people out and i think it's because of this like it's just like it's creepy and unnerving because it's Mm -hmm. such an unnatural thing to do Yeah.
4: yeah and i think
1: that's what adds to the the i think the scariness of of the blair witch project overall um all right so marcos i know you're a little pressed for time Yes, so, a,
3: a little bit. Not that much. Like, I, I got another five minutes for you guys just because okay. I love you guys.
1: Okay. So why don't we talk a little bit. Uh, where would you like to go? I wanted to talk a little bit about how this movie was marketed a bit. Um, let's talk about Sundance if we can.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, okay. personally, I, I think uh, the marketing aspect of it, while absolutely brilliant, has somewhat overshadowed the Mm -hmm. the brilliance of the film itself so while a lot of people focus on that it's not my favorite aspect of the of the whole thing because it was Mm -hmm. brilliant at the time but i think the film really stands out Mm -hmm. it stands up on its own two feet and so we can definitely uh, touch on it and i have a lot to say about you know uh, about it all so we can go wherever you guys want
1: so I think well, part of, like you said, the brilliance of the film working on its own is how unafraid Sanchez and Myrick were were to hack the movie up. Because the original cut of the movie runs about two and a half hours. And the bulk of that movie is really looks a lot more like Curse of the Blair Witch. And the last 30 or 40 minutes of the movie ends up being them lost in the woods. You end up getting the inverse of this where 20 minutes is out of the woods, uh, and it's all documentary. The last hour of, is, of them It's just walking into the woods at that point. So they have a lot of courage to take their original vision for the movie and say, nope, that's not working. Let's actually just stitch together 85 minutes of pure terror.
3: And I think that's why I'm so interested in, in you talking about the, the last broadcast as maybe mm-hmm. as a, a, a catalyst for, for the cut. Mm-hmm. Because it really was... A pivotal moment in the history of this film that they decided to cut out, cut out the 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 stuff that ended up like the phase two stuff that ended up on on the Curse of the Blair Witch and decided mm-hmm. to stick with the with the phase one into the woods footage um, because that really sets the film apart and as much as I love hybrid storytelling. I think it really works best as it is. And I think they realize
2: that. I I was just going to say that I I think that that is one of the best things about the movie. Uh, I think if it was reversed, you know, the way that it was originally intended, I don't think it would have worked as well. I think a big reason for me that it works so well is that it sets up this mythology for the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes and then you get to live out the experience of being afraid, being injected into mm-hmm. that mythology and stuff. Whereas, you know, if, if it w- the most of it was getting you into knowing the mythology and then kind of putting you in the woods for a little bit, I don't think it would have been as frightening. I think it's very frightening, you know, like I said, getting a little glimpse of the past, but then you get to go through it with the characters.
3: I completely agree. It's kind of like being in a roller coaster, like you stand in line for a little bit and then you have sheer terror firsthand. Um, so it, it's kind of that way. You, you set up the story and then you jump into the cart and away you go. Yeah,
1: I agree. And I also I really like the fact that you um, get like 20 minutes of what the documentary would have looked like. Mm -hmm. Um, Before you jump into it So you get And it's not easy to fake a documentary But you get an idea of like Heather as a narrator Slipping into like documentary mode You get a feel for um, How it would have come off If they were to complete the whole picture. And I know there's that moment in Curse of the Blair Witch where one of her professors is like, Heather was my brightest student. She was a great pupil. She was really smart, passionate, driven. Um, And he's like, if I had looked more closely at what this project was, I would not have signed off. So he takes a little bit of the blame saying I wouldn't have signed off. He's like, I didn't realize how unscouted uh, and the dangers that were involved of just kind of going into the woods in a project like this or a film shoot like this because she was just that dedicated to you know to crafting something so I like that you get that 20 minutes of see it
2: see that that that's in what curse of the blur what you said mhm see that little scene would have been perfect i think in the actual film before mm-hmm. they go in the woods because if you get that kind of cautionary If you get that kind of cautionary, like, well, I wish I would have known that this would have Mm -hmm. been a really horrible idea. As a viewer, you're instantly thinking, oh, God, what was it? What Mm -hmm. happened? You know, like, that's such a good touch. Like, I I wish they would have kept that in the movie.
1: I I think you get it without that, though, because, you know, going in, like, the posters, everything is saying, like, they were never found. So when you're going into this movie, (laughs) you're not going into it saying, like, how are they going to get out? you're going into it going, like, how does it end up going wrong for them?
3: Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I think the ambiguity in the storytelling really works uh, Mm -hmm. in the film. I personally... uh, The stuff that ended up on Curse of the Blurred Witch, it is, to me, sort of the lowest quality footage that they got Mm -hmm. in terms Uh of actual content um, because it's sort of... How to explain it? It's... It takes itself too seriously when it's really sort of playing on an idea that is a little phony, Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas the actual film, there is no setup other than what they're doing. Right, Um, yeah. And and when you're watching Curse of the Blair Witch, you can sort of tell that that's fake. But when you're watching the Blair Witch Project, like, you have no inclination. Even Heather's mm-hmm. documentary skills, like, they're not that bad. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's uh, uh, the way I've seen documentaries from friends who went to film school. Like, uh, that's the way they should have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, to me, the, the, the stuff that ended up being cut uh, took away from the realism of, of the mm-hmm. thing and kind of broke the suspension of disbelief. At least that for sense. me, and that, that that's why I prefer that it's not mm-hmm. there because uh, I like both the ambiguity yeah. of, of the storytelling in the main film and the fact that we don't right. get this cheesy news-like footage right. uh, that I personally don't like as much.
1: So when this movie is picked up by Sundance, it's getting about an 80-minute cut that goes to Sundance. The actors aren't allowed to go, which that's a little bit heartbreaking because it's a bummer. It's, it's you know but they're like we need to keep up you know, again we're not telling people this is real but we're also not going to tell people that it's
2: not real so, so it's basically are... it's basically the cannibal holocaust situation again
1: kind of like that exactly um where it's like we're just going to present it as is and you're going to as an audience member you're going to be allowed to make up your mind um yeah. They go so as far, as far as to put up missing signs all over town with the <laughs> actors' names and pictures on them. Although I guess they had to take them down because someone actually did go missing. Um, and they're like, oop, this is in kind of bad taste. Um, <laughs> so it makes its midnight premiere. And this is really the first kind of genre film at Sundance that gets like, this. now it's become a tradition. And Blair Witch is what kicks that tradition off. Um it makes its premiere. The audience goes nuts for it. By 6 a.m. the next day, Artisan is like, here's a bunch of money. Here's a million bucks. We would like to buy your movie. Please
2: and thank you. A million dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that as a filmmaker, especially an independent filmmaker, I, can you imagine Sanchez and Myrick, like, getting that offer? You know, that's mm-hmm. that's the moment that as a filmmaker and just as a person, that is the exact moment that they could probably pinpoint
4: mm-hmm. their lives
2: change, their lives changing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's such a great story to hear. Like, I, I love hearing that considering that they sunk
1: anywhere from like thirty five to sixty thousand into making the movie um, is what the original cost of it was. Now, Artisan does give them s- more money. They give them six figures to reshoot a quote-unquote real ending like Marcos had talked about, although that is all that – it's kind of money they set on fire. Um, you know, The original – of the other ending that they had come up with, I believe, was like the Kool-Aid man bursting through the basement screaming, oh, yeah, at the end, which would have been fucking awesome if they had I've done, done you. that. But I
4: had to. <laughs> Literally Part it, of the so. money
3: also uh, went to uh, improving massively, the improving the, the sound, yes. which which for me, uh, as, as I mentioned before, my background is in sound. So mm-hmm. to me, it makes such a huge difference. Um, mm-hmm. I really cannot stress enough just how big of a difference it can make mm-hmm. on the way it looks, uh, a, a movie looks. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the sound is right and like you mentioned this this realism of of having the dad in the basement and heather approaching that's like that's what that sets up the the, the final scene and it really is an an absolute masterpiece in in terms of sound post production especially mm-hmm. considering the, the source material that they had to work on and just mm-hmm. as a, as a side shout out if you're into sound and spatial accuracy and found footage. Ben Rock directed a podcast called Video Palace for Shutter, Mm -hmm. which you should absolutely check out because it is amazing. And they pay so much attention to Mm -hmm. uh, sound sources and accuracy in terms of spatial reproduction. And it is a complete nerd fest for me as a sound geek but also a brilliant piece of storytelling. So yeah. uh, shout out to that. And yeah no
1: it's a fantastic podcast and I'm really hoping we get it set up for a second season. I would love to hear more of it um, So shutter do the right thing. Um, I really enjoy that podcast a lot. Absolutely. So, so movie gets picked up by artisan they to go uh, full they're gonna go full national with it. Aside from The Curse of the Blair Witch, the other piece of marketing that really helps this movie, they invest, probably the first movie to really use the internet as a marketing tool. And not in a way where it's like, here's a trailer, here's some behind the scenes, here's what people are saying. It's, here is all the mythology of the movie um, laid bare um and you can it's primitive by today's standards but it includes video clips it has a timeline of the mythology there are photographs of the police investigation um and then wasn't there
2: wasn't there like yeah i I think you were about to say the same exact thing i was about like that wasn't there like a like a made-up history of of how it happened exactly
1: um there's the history of like here's the um student uh, archaeology team that found the videotapes (laughs) here are the you know the families like suing the police department and then eventually getting the footage released back to them so it has all these like details that they don't quite need to have but it allows i said like two hours ago about you know buying into pro wrestling being real and suspending disbelief that's kind of what this was like at the time like finding this footage or believing it to be real. Well, I had only heard about this movie four or five days before I went to see it with my best friend Joan. she told me about it and pointed me in the direction of the site. And i poured over it over the course of two days and then got to see the movie when it like premiered in Boston as part of like five cities that got the movie two weeks before it went national. And I completely
2: got sucked in by this website. My dad told me that it was real. Mm -hmm. That's the reason that I went to see it. Mm -hmm. I was 18. I was 18 when it came out, when it went wide and I hadn't heard a single thing about it before that other than my dad picked me up from – I think I went to the mall or something mm-hmm. telling me that he heard on the news or something people talking about this movie that it was real about these people that went missing looking for a witch. Yeah. And like, that's all it took for me to just hit the ground running. I looked up mm-hmm. the website and everything else. And it kind of goes back to what Marcos was saying. Uh, I, me personally, I think it's a double-edged sword. Because, yeah, the marketing was great, and it was a game-changer as far as marketing. But mm-hmm. when you think of the Blair Witch Project, 9 out of 10 people go back to that viral marketing instead mm-hmm. of instead of what I've kind of come to terms with just in this episode. I liked the movie before we started this episode. Mm-hmm. By this point, a couple hours into our conversation, I've realized it's one of the best films of all time. It's one of my top three horror movies of all time, along with no, America, just, the Werewolf, and yeah. the Thing. Like, talking about it, every single element, I've realized that I feel like it's one of the best movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe that isn't what the focus is. It's kind of like what Marco said. You know, like, the focus is mostly on, like, the marketing and stuff. And it kind of takes away from the effect of the actual film. Mm-hmm.
3: So, I mean, this, it's, it's good. A, it's, as a side huh? note. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, just as no, a no, shout, no. Out, shout out to Daniel Karcher who designed the website and maintains it to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still access the website and it's regularly updated actually for like accuracy and some other stuff. Um, and there are two sites, like the one that originally launched and then there's another site that launched a little bit later and both mm-hmm. sites are live to this day mm-hmm. and you can still read all of this crap, like you can read for days. And it's still all online. I'm I'm looking up the address right now just to give it out. Uh, but yeah, um, he he designed the website. He uh, built away the website from the ground up, and it, it's incredible. 20 years later, he's still managing it today.
2: Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah, I'm it's just
3: looking up the the address right now so that you I can I can give it up. Well, it's Blairwitch.com, isn't that easy? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then th- and we will you know definitely I think have links to that here in our show notes overall. Yeah. So, this movie debuts in five cities like Boston, New York, LA, Chicago, and I don't remember what the other one is. Um, but this movie hits five cities first and then goes national. And when it hits five cities it makes like it's tons of money per theater. Um, and it's like back when a slow rollout could actually work pretty well. And then it just starts raking in millions of dollars. It becomes an event. It becomes a kind of movie that the initial audiences coming out of it tell people, you need to see this movie. You need to see this movie. And audiences flock to it. This is when the backlash hits on the movie.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: This is like yeah. people that were told about it as opposed to seeking it out are like – I didn't find it scary. Nothing happens. Maybe me want to throw up. The camera shakes too much. Or like it's not as you know. And people like end up hating this movie. for, Despite the fact that it makes a shit ton of money. People walk out of it and hate the movie. Because they don't see anything. Now my theory on this is. When people realized it was a fictional movie. And not a snuff film. They felt cheated. And they turn on the movie and the filmmakers. They feel like the wool has been pulled over their
2: eyes at that point, and they don't like that. Okay, but this is my theory on that. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Key and Pill,
0: that, mm-hmm. that show. I
2: am. I you am. Know, there's a skit that came out, I think I think they did a newer one, uh, where they both come out of a horror movie. And they're the typical horror fans that talk about, oh no, it wasn't scary at all. Oh no, no, it was nothing. While they're pissing their pants and like holding each other in their arms and stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that is one hundred percent the Blair Witch detractors. That they were like, "Oh, well, this kind of like what happened with Paranormal Activity," which mm-hmm. made made the foolish decision of saying it's the scariest film of all time.
1: But Never do when that. you yes.
2: when no, do not the, the Evil scariest Dead remake did that same thing. Yeah. The scariest movie
1: of all time is that bondage film of my grandparents. Um, that's <laughs>
2: no,
3: just
4: terrifying, but, right? Hey, no, don't, but, knock
3: <laughs> 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 don't knock my collection. Don't knock try it, bro.
4: Right. No, uh,
2: but I, I feel like whenever a, a film gets hyped up to that, there's always going to be those people that's like, no, it didn't affect me at all. Meanwhile, they're they need a change of underwear because they shit their pants.
3: I think I, a lot of it just has to do with a sheer amount of people that saw it so you're you're gonna get people who didn't like it even citizen Kane uh, has a ton of people to this day that that find the movie boring and and long and slow so I think it it was bound to have detractors from the moment they decided to make it different Uh, people don't like different Uh, so I think it, it was a natural reaction and I think you hit on the point there uh, about pulling the wool over their eyes. I think they do. Feel, I think they did feel cheated. I think, um, and, and knowing from personal experience, when I found out that it wasn't real after watching it, I felt cheated too. Um, but not to the point where I disliked the movie. Just I was disillusioned by the fact that this this experience, this thing that I had discovered, and that changed my life. Uh, wasn't really all it was crept up to be so i can understand why the why the people felt uh, you know why they felt a little cheated
2: the thing that bothers me is the nothing happens thing that gets thrown around
3: yeah like, i think that's I, a I, lot of that so for people who haven't seen it well
2: that and even like it, it, we still fight with horror fans these days with that with like you know slow burn films and stuff like that you know, like I remember going to The Witch. I saw The Witch at a festival before it came out, and there was a mm-hmm. couple people like I hated it. Nothing happens, or The Black Coat's Daughter. I hated it. Nothing really happens to the end. It's part of storytelling, right. building building mood and tension. It's part of like when you watch The Blair Witch in 2016,
1: they go the op, they try to mimic the path of the Blair Witch project, but make it a roller coaster ride throughout the film. And it doesn't work. Like it doesn't take a moment to breathe. And it's part of my issue with the latest It movie, um, which it's good. I would go see it again at a drive in with family, whatever. But it never takes its time to breathe. Like something has to happen every. 30 seconds in a movie like this, or Mm. you feel like you're not doing anything where this movie lets it build up this existential dread throughout it. And that's why it works. Like it's not meant to be a theme park ride. It's just meant to like make you feel unnerved
2: and unsettled throughout the movie. Um,
1: So that's,
4: that's,
2: that's what scares me mm -hmm. as, as a viewer. I'm not afraid of people popping up at me. I'm Mm -hmm. afraid of losing hope. You know, that's my biggest fear. Mm
3: -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it plays a lot into what we're afraid of uh, as people, like individually. Mm -hmm. Some people will not find, uh, you know, hopelessness uh, scary because maybe they have never felt hopelessness before. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least to that degree or in that situation, it's not a trigger for them. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it resonates with people who have had that feeling and who have felt uh, hopeless, and you put yourself in that situation, and particularly with that level of, of intimacy between what goes on the screen and yourself, and you have a recipe to have perhaps perhaps less of a wider impact, but much more of a harder impact on the people yeah. you do connect with.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I would agree with that, and I think the for the people that appreciated, like I didn't watch this again for ten years, not because it wasn't a great movie but because like i don't know if i could go through this again um and when i did watch it again i remember it was the night that paranormal activity was playing in boston for the first time and i'm like i'll watch Blair witch project again i'm gonna watch it like on an ipad though because fuck that if i'm gonna like watch it on big screen (laughs) you know and i've come to like We've screened it outdoors in my backyard and the cover, like, all, almost kind of in the woods. And we would love to do, like, oh an outdoor God. screening of it in the woods that are near us. Uh, and I've tried to figure that out. Um, cause still I'm getting shivers. Up. I'm yeah, getting
2: shivers hearing about up. that. I we, saw it when I was 18 and I mm. didn't watch it again until I was 36 cause it was two that, years ago. That, like, it, it's movie. just, it, it is. Mm-hmm. So,
1: For me,
3: uh, I, I try to revisit it at least once a year, and there are years, like, if something's fucked up in my life, whenever I try to rewatch it, I, I, I can't reach it. Like, it's, I, can, I can't go through, like, whenever that scene pops out where Josh snaps at Heather, that's usually mm-hmm. where I, like, switch off. Because mm-hmm. it gets way too real, way too fast, mm-hmm. and I I gotta check out because it, it hits all the right boxes at, at the right at the wrong time.
1: Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> whose, eventually, guys, whose fault is it? That's why maybe the last thing we chat about here before Marcos. You going to go. Yeah. Whose fault is it that these kids are doomed?
3: I think uh, personally. I think, and and this is why I love the the film so much on a personal level, and why it inspired my own filmmaking career. I think it's discrimination,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and I think it's because if uh, there there never was a an indication that Ellie Kedward was an evil witch mm-hmm. before she was brought out into the woods to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, being a witch does not necessarily make you a bad person. Uh, it just means you are a pagan. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, you know, the difference in practicing of beliefs led these people to basically torture in uh, to death this this woman. That you know, we do have some inkling regarding the kids and that kind of stuff disappearing, mm-hmm. but it really starts to take off after she is, she is left out to die mm-hmm. uh, into the woods. So for me, it, it really was something that was brought upon uh, by this lack of tolerance that, that was shown towards Ellie Kedward. Uh, perhaps maybe I'm just being a little, uh, you know, rose-tinted glasses type person. Mm-hmm. But I do think that uh, it, it goes all the way back to Ellie Kedward and the reasoning why she was left to die. Um, because when you set that kind of thing in motion into the universe, even to this day, personally, I think that when you create something like that, you put something like that out into the world, that level of, um, of evil of uh, you know against a person i think that just it will continue to haunt you for the rest of your life and i think personally i think that's what what did it um just mm-hmm. lack you know uh, a tolerance maybe
1: so you're buying into they were doomed from the moment they stepped in because the ground had gone sour by that point due to the yeah I,
3: yeah well the the thing is that they were not really all that respectful about the events from mm-hmm. the get-go. Uh, so to me, that that plays a lot into the 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 folklore of the story as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to remember that uh, the story of Ellie Kedward relies heavily on uh, people doing wrong by her and mm-hmm. those that she are, is able to manipulate. Um, and I think those are two things that uh, that happen with with. Uh, Josh, Michael, and Heather. You have people who are not very respectful of mm. of the story, and you have people who are easily manipulated. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a very dangerous combination, uh, which or not.
1: I think that's a good point. I think, to me, it's the moment that Josh knocks over the carn is what seals it for them, and it may have already been sealed before that. But I think that when they come upon those three piles of rocks and Josh, like they're filming it and Josh knocks it over, I think that's the moment where their fates are sealed at that point. Um, I know that there's a moment where Heather takes, quote unquote, takes responsibility for what goes on and says, this is all my fault. It was my movie. It was my project. But I can't blame her. I think she approaches
2: it with the most amount of respect of the three you know, of them. At the same time, though, uh, I mean, I'm not placing the blame on Heather because mm-hmm. I don't think it's her fault. I do think that they were doomed from the get-go. Mm-hmm. But I think a big reason why she says it was it was her fault is because she kind of duped them.
4: Yes, it's you a good know? point.
2: She, she did manipulate Josh and uh uh
3: yeah
2: uh michael mm-hmm. you know yeah she said she said that she scouted the whole area right. she said that everybody knew this it was a lie from the get-go right. you know well, she never says that she scouted it she said that it was a scouted trip but she but, never but, says i am the
1: one that she implies that she scouted it but we know that that's not a fact like she's never well, it's been almost
2: there like before. it's almost like word games like mm-hmm. like my kids my kids do that i mm-hmm. hear i hear one of my kids like you know hit my other kid and i'll see what happened uh well they did that it's like mm-hmm. no responsibility you know right like, Good point like I I think like I do think that they were screwed right from the beginning because once mm-hmm. you step foot on that land and I think mm-hmm. there is the evil in it but there's also that spirit of vengeance you know yes. I I think I think that there's multiple mm-hmm. spirits involved in the in the whole thing I'm I'm very mm-hmm. much a believer in that stuff in real life mm-hmm. you know like very like I think that. They had no right doing that. They had wow. no right going on that land to, with their own selfish agendas, you know, and they were disrespectful towards it. So I mm-hmm. I, I, think I, I think it's a combination of like it's everybody's fault, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And it's
1: interesting because, you know, Heather would go on to say because she's treated very unfairly, I think in the movie by the characters. And also once the movie is released, like I think she gives such an incredible performance in this. It's so real, so honest. And I think that's what scares a lot of people because it's just this raw nerve that's hit. And you can say that she can be a bit, much at times um, throughout some of the movie um, she can get defensive really easily at points or not maybe be sometimes respectful of Mike and Josh. But at the same time, like when they're trapped in this situation, she's the one that keeps it better together than any of them. Like she's the one that I think has the calmest head of the three of them. And she would go on to say like, you know, Her mother would get either letters saying, I'm sorry that your daughter is dead, which is like, nope, she's an actress, or she deserved what she got in that movie, which is really fucked up when you think about it. Um, And she said about her career and playing the part in this role, like, you know, telling people that I was dead for like nine months before the movie came out did not do any favors for my career. Well, not
2: at all, because if a film comes out and it's a hit, that's usually Mm -hmm. when you strike. You know, that's usually when you try to get opportunities for your next job. Mm -hmm. You know, I think kind of having to be non-existent for the Mm -hmm. sake of marketing, you know, by the time that everybody had seen Blair Witch, like it was kind of an old thing Mm -hmm. to them. You know, who cares about the people that were in it?
1: I think there's an inherent misogyny, too, where I think that if you were to switch the roles of Heather and Josh, and this was Josh's project that he would have been seen as, like, a leader and keeping it together, and, like, they should have fallen in line behind him, and everyone would have been fine. But because Heather is the one that's really pulling the strings in this and saying, nope, this is where we're going to go, this is our schedule, here's where we are, she is... Like, Josh would have been seen as kind of like entrepreneurial uh, and innovative for what he wanted to do, and it just didn't work out. Where a lot of blame is put on Heather because she's a female in charge, and you know, God forbid you have like a bossy in charge woman in charge of these two dudes.
3: I completely agree, and I was gonna say as as a part as my you know my parting gift uh, Mm -hmm. to to the podcast as as I really uh, should get going. Um, you got to take into consideration the societal context of the film uh, Mm -hmm. and and sort of the the era that the film was made in, uh, conceived in and released in because um, it was very, very rare to see a female character lead two male characters in uh, an endeavor that seemed like uh, would be of any significance mm-hmm. um, in the in the late '90s, um, and uh, this is 1999. We had uh, the Matrix, which featured Neo as as a dude, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Fight Club, which it's another conversation entirely, and it it really is representative of a society that looks down upon uh, female leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think. A lot of the blame that was put on Heather for leading, uh, supposedly leading the, the group astray comes from the fact that she was a female in power. And uh, it, part of me re- does wonder, like you mentioned, whether the, the criticism would have been the same if it had been uh, Josh or Michael who were the leads of the project. And, you know, it it all comes down to this uh, idea that I have. Maybe I'm I'm projecting a little bit onto the film, but the fact that it deals with discrimination and tropes in a very interesting way, uh, both on Ellie Kedwar's part and on Heather's part, because I think both are Indian women who are judged... Mm -hmm. Uh, in large part because of who they are rather than what they do. And uh, I think that's, uh, at least for me, one of the impactful things about the film and one of the things that uh, I like about it the most.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Marcos, I know you have to bounce...
3: So, I do have to bounce like a, like a tennis ball. I'm bouncing like a tennis ball.
1: Marcos, where can people find you online and what are you working on? What do you want to promote?
3: Uh, well, uh, you can find me on any social media at Marcos Codas. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the same handle. Uh, I got early on all of those trains, so I got my own name mm-hmm. as my handle, which is quite nice. Um, and right now I'm working on finishing the comic book prequel to my horror film Curso Serapio, which deals with uh discrimination and witchcraft. Uh, Excellent. funnily enough, uh, so I'm working on the comic book prequel right now, which is sort of the origin story of how the witch acquires her powers, mm-hmm. uh, despite uh. Her unwillingness to take part In the grand scheme of things So uh, you can look forward to that Just follow me on Twitter And I'll be sure to send you guys out um, Something to look forward to
4: Thank you All for right. being Thanks
3: so for generous
1: time. with your time man And you have a great night uh, We're in the middle So Marco's at the sign off But we're going to just do a little bit more here Just because again you know, this, is like, industry, this is my <laughs> Halloween
2: it's Friday 13th in the spirit of making uh, comparisons to two things that would never be compared, with the kind of train of thought that all of us were on, where if the tables were turned, you know, and it was a male in Heather's part, it would have been mm-hmm. accepted. Listeners out there, I know this is a weird recommendation, but I would very much recommend picking up the new Taylor Swift album. <laughs> okay. Because there is a song on there that addresses exactly what we're talking about. And I'm not even saying that as a jokey way. There's a song called The Man. And you know what? Like, I think it's a very important song to listen to. So, uh, listeners, go do that. So, okay, well, back think, to Blair <laughs> I think you see it still with toxic fandom now.
1: I mean, look at yeah. all the shit that, like, Ray from Star Wars gets for doing Jedi shit. You know, and like, like Captain and get, mm-hmm. like, why doesn't you know? she smile? Why does she not? Why is she like, why well, are you asking Captain? No one asked Batman to smile. No one asked the Punisher that, to
2: smile. Uh, even more than a smile thing, which is infuriating on itself. But like, my daughter finally has a superhero mm-hmm. that she could identify with, you know? Like I, I was so excited when that movie came out, and then I was reading all these things online. Like, well, we're gonna boycott it because we don't need a female. Le-. Like, mm-hmm. are you serious? Like, we're still,
4: yeah. we're
2: still in the like the dark ages with that shit.
1: Right. I mean, three years ago was it 2016 that the Ghostbusters
2: right. Um, right. reboot
1: came out, and you have these people like this is ruining my childhood. It's like, no, man, being a shithead adult is what's ruining your childhood. Like, like whether or not Trisha you Clark-
2: like the movie. Mm-hmm. i'm not trying to get dark but being molested ruined my yes. childhood right fucking ninja turtles you know the ninja turtles with william victor didn't ruin my fucking childhood right like if anyone says that like that's the quickest way to get a knuckle sandwich exactly you yeah. know it's just a the, the original the original source material is still there you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i'm sorry like i might be in the minority but fuck you guys ghostbusters was fun I love it. I think that's you I, know, dude,
4: a I hilarious movie.
2: movie. I loved that movie. Like it is light years better than Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, absolutely is. So <laughs> that was a little
1: side rant there um, <laughs> that we both had. But I just like <laughs> I really do feel that a lot of the a lot of the maliciousness that sometimes this movie gets comes from in part people feeling like the wool was pulled over their eyes a bit because something like this and it's not the first quote-unquote found footage movie but you know cannibal holocaust at the in 1999 you had a small subgroup of people that would have actively sought that movie out and been aware of yeah. that movie it you well, know it's, was kind of like
2: uh, it's kind of like the film buffs that get super pissed when you mention like halloween or black christmas mm-hmm. You know, yes, Peeping Tom did it first. I, you know, I I I'm a huge fan of Peeping Tom. But what Halloween did and what Black Christmas did to a lesser extent business-wise brought that thing that Peeping Tom had already done, but did it in a way that brought it to audiences. Yeah. Blair Witch wasn't the first found footage movie, but it was the first found footage movie that pulled in that much money and brought the technique Mm -hmm. and the style of found footage into the masses in a way that opened the door for so many other filmmakers.
1: Exactly. No, that's exactly true. So here's my question, and maybe this will be the last thing we talk about. Maybe not. Who knows? Um, How much credit should the Blair Witch get for the proliferation of found footage horror movies? I think it's a fairer point to say that Paranormal Activity is the jumping point for so many of these movies getting made. Even though Blair Witch Projects makes $248 million worldwide, and that's in 1999 dollars, so it would be even more nowadays, it's not the number one genre film of the year. Uh, a little movie called The Sixth Sense comes out right around the time of The Blair Witch Project, and that makes even more money, and that launches the career of M. Night Shyamalan. Um, and it's a crowd-pleasing movie. It's something I didn't see until af- well after it came out on DVD, but I think it's something that was more pal- palatable for like a mainstream audience, more of what mm-hmm. they're used to. And the twist in that movie was you know fun and spooky and surprising but it didn't fuck with your expectations and fuck with your head like Blair Witch project did i yeah. almost think that like found footage was shied away from for a good 6 or 7 8 years because of the criticisms that this movie yeah. received
2: what i i feel like this i think the Blair Witch project is one of the best horror films around and the, the idea of found footage, it was groundbreaking in that. But kind of like what you said, it, people did shy away. And I do feel like Paranormal Activity, I'm not saying it's a better movie than Blair Witch, because it is not in any way. But with that being said, I think Paranormal Activity and the success of that did make found footage a thing. You know what I mean? Like, Blair Witch did it before that. And did it amazingly well. Mm-hmm. But it, it was Paranormal Activity that was just like, wow, this made all this money. Let's all make found footage movies for mm-hmm. a long time. I yeah. feel like that was the one that started it.
1: I, I think so, too. Because I think by that point, digital filming digitally had gotten cheap enough and easy enough where you could do it. And... Paranormal Activity, What? so when you look at the sequels to both movies, and I love Paranormal Activity, Uh, I think Mm -hmm. it still works. It's still really scary. As we were recording this, I went on to Amazon. I'm like, oh yeah, they're going to release all six movies on Blu-ray. For 20 bucks in a week, I need to jump on that before it goes up 10 bucks in price. Um so that's you know what I was kind of doing in between recording here a little bit. Even though I don't love the other movies quite as much. I think the third one is great. Second one is eh. I think what they did that was smart, Blair Witch Projects go it goes in a completely different direction with its sequel, and it does not work um (laughs) i've you know people that i respect have written about this movie and say you know it's really good for what it is and like this is why it's not good it's not good because it's not good um and then what they do is they take what audiences went to see blair witch project for and completely removed it and did something different where paranormal activity 2 Take oh, this is what audience liked about our movie. Well, we're just going to do more of that in the sequel. We're going to amplify what we do. Uh, people liked about the first one, and well, we're going to collect all that money. Please, and like the people that run Blumhouse are no dummies.
2: No, Jason's extremely smart business wise, mm-hmm. but I think what Book of Shadows did, and I I think the biggest fuck up when it comes to that movie and i i am using fuck up in an angry way because
4: mm-hmm. dude
2: how how you feel about mandy i'm right there with you when it comes to mm-hmm. book of shadows uh i think what it does and it's the biggest slap to the face is it gives a middle finger to everything that works about the first yeah film. Mm-hmm. i think having one of the characters actually say oh i saw the Blair Witch project i love that movie or some shit like that mm-hmm. it's like are you serious
4: mm-hmm.
2: like the first film exists as a movie in the second right. movie and it's just like I I've never there's there are very few movies in my entire life that I've walked out of I I could count all of them Mm -hmm. on one hand Uh, Jurassic Park the second one I -hmm. walked out of that I walked out of uh, the lake house with Keanu Reeves Mm -hmm. I don't know why the fuck I was in the theater to see that Uh, you know I walked out of Book of Shadows and recently I almost walked out of uh, 47 meters down uncaged okay you know Those are the only movies in my Mm -hmm. entire life that I've either said, you know what, fuck this, or wanted to. I think Book of Shadows is the biggest insult to fans of the first film and what made the first film work. And like I said early on in this episode, it baffles me because they got one of the best documentary filmmakers around to make a narrative movie that just did not work.
1: Well, we're going to talk about that in a lot more depth in about a week, because I have a lot to say about that, too. The one note I'll have on it right now is I know Joe Berlinger, and I hope I'm saying that right, but Berlinger said he hated the Blair Witch Project, and he um, was angry at what Sanchez and Myrick had done because he felt it was irresponsible Trying to pass off something as real when it's obvious fiction, he thought that was a very dangerous road to go down. And he's like, "Look, we elect politicians on sound bites now." It was pretty prescient remarks, and again, getting into where we are with media today. But I think that that's a cop out in terms of, of, to me, what Sanchez and Myrick do is just another form of storytelling. Berlinger
2: said that the Blair Witch Project was irresponsible filmmaking.
1: Yes. And he goes on to
2: make one of the biggest shit shows in history. Right. Just a bad movie, but not irresponsible. I am throwing Paradise Lost out my fucking window right in an upstart.
1: I would not do that. (laughs) No, I love it. I love it. Um, Free the Memphis Three.
2: Um,
1: But (laughs) it's... um, it to me he and it's another case and we'll talk more about it he didn't want to make the movie and Artisan kept bugging him meanwhile Sanchez and Myrick had their ideas for the movie um, they wanted to go back and tell the story of Rust and Parr in more detail. In God, 2011 think- or 12, they kind of wanted to do what the witch did. They like When they saw the witch, they're like, this is kind of what we wanted to do with our prequel here. We wanted to tell the story of uh, Ellie Kedward overall. And it's shocking to me that these guys never were given the opportunity to go back and tell, because there's so much story to lay out Overall, and they would not have done more found footage movies, I believe, but they would have told deep, rich stories within this mythology that I think really would have worked. Much the way that people are looking at, like, it chapter one and chapter two and going, can we go back and make prequel movies about, like, the Black Spot fire and the massacre at the bar, Um could we go back and tell like other stories to pennywise that are prequels? Like, yes, you could do that. I don't know how effective it would be, but I think you could have told some really good stories with what the mythology these guys had so richly drawn out.
2: I also I also feel like it's such a great time to warrant those kind of stories. Mm-hmm. Like it's 2019 and films like The Witch or I mean Oz Perkins just released the trailer for Gretel and Hansel mm-hmm. and it feels like a cross between The Witch and The Blair Witch project like god damn that movie looks great like I would kill to have Sanchez and Myrick come together to make a movie like that mm-hmm. like I wish I wish that they would have the opportunity
1: Right and it's going to be interesting when we talk about the 2016 movie um Because they were, they really wanted, they really wanted to make another one right around that time. And I think they have some pretty interesting, lightly critical and interesting things to say about what um, Simon Barrett and Adam Wingard actually uh, created. And I know that when you watch, I don't know, have, have you ever watched the or listened to the commentary for the 2016 Blair Witch?
2: I haven't. I've only seen it once.
1: (laughs) It hurts to listen to that because they recorded it about two or three weeks after the movie came out and underperformed. And they basically are like, hi, we're the guys that killed any potential for this franchise. Or, hi, if you're listening to this right now, you probably saw Sully in theaters instead. And you can tell (laughs) Simon Barrett in particular felt this deep hurt. I think they really loved, unlike Berlinger, who Berlinger who like didn't have any affection for this movie, those two had a lot of affection for the yeah. original Blair Witch Project, and I think it shows in their movie, um, which I think is flawed but good, and I think yeah. it deserves better than its reputation, and you can tell how much they were hurt and I don't think they've worked together as filmmakers since, which is a no,
2: bummer. No, they haven't. I mean Wingard went off to do Death Note and now he's doing uh the
1: Godzilla Convers- King Kong, Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. I'm on board for that.
2: Oh so. dude, I am so into that that so. new reboot of that franchise.
1: All right. So who do we have coming up? Like we have a couple before we even get to Book of Shadows. We have a couple more episodes planned just on the Blair Witch Project and the last broadcast. Oops. We're actually going to just
2: cover the last broadcast. Um, yeah. We're going to do a whole like 10 part series just on the last broadcast. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> OK, now what we what we have planned, uh, we have two side episodes. Uh, can't have we announced this already? Can we, we have not? So let's do it because let's let's, okay. let's 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 put our dicks out there right now.
1: This might blow up on our face, but <laughs> you know, it blows up my face every time yeah. I put my dick out there. And, and by the way, like <laughs> if, if if this doesn't happen, I'm blaming you, Kane Hodder.
2: So, oh, you fucker. No, just
4: joking. Come, okay. so,
2: two episodes coming up before we even get to Book of Shadows. We have Ben Rock who, uh, you know, Marcos Cota's biggest yeah. fan club ever. See, he's <laughs> I ar- love it. He's the
1: architect behind a lot of the mythology. He yes. um, called together a lot of. We the reason we didn't go super deep into the Curse of the Blair Witch and the Burkittsville Seven because I think we're going to end up doing that uh, with him, and we speak with him later this week uh, and how you know how he shaped those and how he you know enhanced I think the overall film experience. Most and who else do we have?
2: And we have Eduardo fucking Sanchez. Co-director the, of the Blair Witch One of Project. the directors of the Blair Witch Project. One of the most influential horror films of all time. Mm-hmm. I, I am so just ecstatic. I'm so anxious for that episode. Like, it cannot come soon enough.
1: Well, so I'm hoping we can, because, like, you know, and what's great is I got the impression, like, some people get kind of tired of talking about you know what they're most known for. Um and it kind of becomes like, well, I've said everything I have to say about it already. And, you know, the work just speaks for itself. It's like one of the biggest disappointments I've ever had in my life was interviewing Ian Mackay from Fugazi. Um oh. a band that meant so much to me. And yeah. I interviewed him in like 95 for my old fanzine. And he was such a fucking curmudgeon.
2: Um, I still about, love their views. About music. or about Minor Threat, Just too? Just about fucking everything,
1: man. Just man. about everything. Just, which I guess that's who he is, you know, like stupid me for not realizing that. I remember at one point we got in a yell. Oh, I yelled at him because he tried. I'm like, I always ended interviews with like, if you could take any Muppet on a date, what Muppet would it be and where would you go? And he's like, I don't know who the Muppets are. And I'm like, dude, you're full of shit. You don't know who the fucking Muppets are. Oh, you gosh. don't know Kermit the Frog. Like, you self serious smug straight <laughs> Okay.
2: But at the same time, have you ever had this is really quick. Have you ever had any interviews that you thought would be a disaster that were like some of the best ever? Like I sat down for Blumhouse once, I sat down face to face, two feet away from Henry Rollins and talked about his mm-hmm. career. And he was one of the coolest cats. Yeah. And like Oh my god, I walked away from that just even a bigger fan than I already was, yep, which is a absolutely. lot.
1: Absolutely, just the genuine, real deal. I think I interviewed Rollins at one point for oh. my old fanzine, and he was like the real deal. Super nice, yeah. gracious, Like, and he's one of my heroes growing up. So
2: Danzig, Danzig was one of the like best conversations I've ever mm-hmm. had in my life. And we just talked about Simpsons mm-hmm. at Comic-Con for 10 minutes.
1: Bill Stevenson from the Descendants was another. Oh
2: yes, really yes. Good. We talked
1: about masturbation and just a lot of other there, weird. You know,
2: what, you know what we should do? And our listeners might not like this, mm-hmm. but we should just have a one-off episode on punk rock and hardcore. I would
1: be so sad. I would be awful. Oh my
2: that. god! Like, it would you know not what, be a one-off. Let's well, get we a hold do... of Blake. Let's go to hold up could... Blake and try to do a Jawbreaker episode. I
1: would. I don't know if I could speak to Blake and not burst into <laughs> tears it would be like, remember that time you wrote Jinx removing? Moving? That was awesome. That's the whole interview. Um, but we could, I would easily do like side episodes of like the decline of Western civilization or, you know, like the Descendants documentary. Like even if we did like, I don't know,
4: Oh God. Charge people
1: about it We'll figure something out. I mean we have yeah. some ridiculous shit planned for this, so um, you know, we'll see where things go. Um so yes, we're gonna be interviewing that's a long way to say. <laughs> we're Eduardo Sanchez, and I'm hoping that like it we're able to approach things from an angle uh and maybe get a few things that maybe people have not asked before.
2: Um Actually, like, listeners listeners if and Blair Witch fans. Uh, So, Marcos, definitely you. Sign, like, sound off. Give us as many things you want to know about the Blair Witch Project as possible on our Twitter. Like, ask as many questions as possible, because I want this interview with Sanchez to be an extensive, Mm -hmm. just wonderful episode. Yes.
1: So we sat down about four hours ago to start this recording. Oh, shit. With some stops and starts in between for pee breaks and bad internet connections. So this is like, holy shit. Yeah, it does not feel like four hours, which is incredible. I did not um, realize that. Yeah. So what we're going to do now is actually going to go back and revisit Jason Goes to Hell, just for Jerry. Why is he warm? So... He's- just because it's Sean Cunningham. Um, so thank you to all our listeners. Um, I actually have to go eat because I'm feeling a little bit uh, lightheaded at this point from talking so much. But you can find us over at pod and pendulum at uh, Jerry is just okay and at mike underscore snoony and over on Twitter. We'll be back with some bonus episodes. We're looking forward to your feedback. We hope you enjoy this marathon episode and we'll be back next week, or actually probably later this week with some more stuff.